Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Now Showing Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Sam Hoos, and I'm joined once again by my wonderful co-host, Lewis. Now, of course, I normally do the 5 4 3 2, 1 Bazinga, and then it's kind of both of us, but unfortunately, I realised that my mic wasn't working for the first couple minutes, so it's nothing proper. I'll just cut that out. It's nothing we're missing, really. Uh, but today, we're going to be looking at three Edgar Wright films. Uh, we looked at... Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, which is a film I'd never seen before. I know a lot of people consider it Edgar Wright's best, um, but I hadn't ever seen it. We're looking at Baby Driver, which came out in 2017, and is a film that I think Lewis hadn't seen since it first came out. I only watched it recently, but Lewis hadn't seen it since it first came out. So he wasn't really into film at the time. So you're um, kind of looking back at that. And then, of course, the big new Edgar Wright release, which is Last Night in Soho that came out last week um, and looks at a young girl played by Thomas McKenzie from Cornwall who moves to London to become an aspiring fashion designer. She's a fashion student. Uh, and while she gets to London, she, when she goes to sleep, she kind of inhabits the world of this singer in the 60s, a swinging 60s Soho called Sandy, played by Anya Taylor-Joy. And it turns out that maybe her dreams aren't actually just dreams, that she's seeing visions of London in the 60s. Um, so we'll get to that when we get to that. Uh, so what I'm going to do now, uh, obviously I said that I'm adding this in post. So what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to cut to me asking Lewis what films he watched and then my mic started working after that. So enjoy. Uh, I actually haven't watched much of that time. I thought I had, but I've just checked and I haven't. I don't know why it feels like I've watched more than I have, but I watched obviously last night in Soho and then I watched for the first time, I think, um, the 1998 Wesley Snipes Blade because uh, yeah it did we went to see it and um, it was so much fun it was so ridiculous oh no we didn't go to see it though I went to see it with JL and Charlie you were elsewhere yeah <laughs> but yeah I'd never seen it before um, and the first kind of 10 minutes I was a bit well not the first 10 minutes the opening scene is a scene in a nightclub which is like insane and incredible but then the 10 minutes after that are a bit slow, a bit boring and I was like this is a bit of a drag but then when it kicked up again it was incredible, it was amazing, it was so much fun it's so over the top and ridiculous and cheesy 90s action with over the top blood and gore and it was so ridiculous and so much fun and I definitely recommend it for people I would not however recommend doing it, watching it immediately after last night in Soho because several times in the film Blade says I need to go downtown and <laughs> all I can imagine is Anya Taylor-Joy and every single time he went I need to go downtown my head just went downtown and I was just hearing Anya Taylor-Joy singing downtown which took me out of it slightly but mm-hmm. overall, Blade was a very fun experience. But I also I, think uh... it's one of the coolest... In fact, I will bring this back up again when we talk about Baby Driver, because Blade features either the coolest or the second coolest hmm. moment that involves sunglasses in film. Really? Um, yeah. I haven't seen it. I've never seen Blade. Uh, it's kind of often credited as being one of the like the kind of things that brought superhero films back and made popular yeah. again and the kind of pioneer within the, the film industry because, you know, it was easy to sell as a vampire story rather than a superhero story. Um, but yeah, it's a shame I didn't manage to make that when it, it, they put it back in cinemas because, you know, I haven't seen it. And 
of course, we're getting Blade in the MCU in a few years. Uh, isn't it already confirmed that it's going to be... Um, I can't, I can't. you know, uh, who, who are actors confirmed to play it's it? It's Mahershala Ali is playing Blade. I did know who it was, but I just was, I wasn't confident in the pronunciation. Oh. Um, <laughs> Mahershala, is that it? I think it's Mahershala, yeah. Mahershala Ali. Um, yeah, so um, obviously it's topical. So that, is, that, is that it? Yeah, that's it. I thought there was more, but there isn't. But there wasn't. I haven't watched you've watched more else. than I have, to be fair. So that's congratulations. Um, yeah, the I haven't watched any films since last episode, but I am recording this two two days after the last episode, so it's not exactly like I really fucked up or anything. You know, I haven't much time. I have watched one thing, which uh, was a ten minute long short film um, called V um, that came out in twenty seventeen. And it was directed, uh, it started, I don't know why it's directed by Jimmy Dean, I don't know why I said that. Uh, but it stars uh, Sinove Carlson, um, who is in Last Night in Soho. She plays um, Jocasta, the f- flatmate oh, yeah. of Thomas McKenzie's character. I clicked on her letterbox randomly, like seeing what she was in, just just curiosity. And I saw that she'd only ever been in like one thing. I was like, oh, what's this? And I watched it. And it's it's a nice little, um, like, like, um, talking head kind of thing about a vampire and she's like talking about her her ex-boyfriend uh, and she's kind of like drinking down a bottle of blood while she's doing it and and it's it's quite funny and it was quite sad and it was it's actually quite good it's a quite a good little it's on vimeo it's called v go find it out it's a good little short film um but yeah i haven't watched any films this year uh, this year fuck me i haven't seen <laughs> any films this this between these two episodes so this is probably the shortest ever uh installment of what we've watched because we've both got nothing uh so i um i've got some sad news um which is that and i i just i really you know i feel like some people know about the whole situation some people know about half of the situation but just in case people aren't aware um i didn't really want to talk about it because it is distressing it's a bad way to start the podcast a negative way to start the podcast but I think it's important to say, if, if everyone isn't aware, Chris Pratt will be voicing Garfield in uh, a new animated movie. Um, this follows the already distressing news that Chris Pratt is playing Mario, which we never discussed on the podcast, by the way, actually. We never discussed the podcast, the Mario movie yeah, we um, did, did we? casting. So you can have a word now, but Chris Pratt is voicing two truly beloved characters here. Um, just... You know, this feels a bit like when I do one of those obituaries. You know, uh, I went on that little when I went have a little speech when um, when Chadwick Boseman died or whatever. It feels a bit like that. You know, it feels like these sad moments. But can you just say some words? What do you? What is your reaction to this news? Chris Pratt voicing Garfield. Chris Pratt voicing Mario. I uh, honestly, I I don't know how to feel. Well, I do negatively, but I mean, like, I don't know what, how to <laughs> respond to this distressing news. Mm. I'm, I've never been a massive fan of Chris Pratt, so to see to know that if I want to watch films involving beloved animated characters, I'll have to put up with him. That is upsetting. Now, to a degree, I mean, I'm not particularly, you know, I'm joking about, it, of course, you know, it's not really sad news. I don't really care, uh, and I'm sure Chris Pratt will be a fine Garfield, I, I guess. Um, it's not like well, the other Mario day, like much worse. Bill Murray played him last time. And obviously he's got the sass about him. I wonder what Chris Pratt will do. Obviously, maybe a bit slightly more light, you know, slightly more um, 
kind of, I guess, friendly. I don't know. It feels, I don't feel like Chris Pratt is sassy uh, in the same way. But it'll be fine. But the weird one is Mario. Like, that is oh, a yeah. very strange casting decision. Especially um, because so the, the film, person who voices Mario is still alive. He's in the film. And, and he's going to be in the film. Is he going to be in the film? Yeah, we don't know what he's going to do. Charles Martinet, who's... Um, Who's who's been the voice of Mario for his you know for the entire duration of Mario's existence uh, since 1985, whatever. He he is going to be in the film. I imagine it's some sort of cameo role or something, but he's not going to be playing Mario. Um, the full so list of worse. the casting list uh, is um, Sebastian Maniscalco as Foreman Spike, Kevin Michael Richardson as Kamek, Fred Armisen as Cranky Kong. Now into the interesting stuff here. Seth Rogen as Donkey Kong. Uh, interesting. Keegan Michael Key as Toad. Charlie Day of It's Always Sunny fame as Luigi. Anya Taylor Joy as Princess Peach. Chris Pat as Mario. And the worst of all is Jack Black as Bowser. The which worst. Everyone's, everyone says, oh, that makes sense. So I think as someone that has a frankly allergic reaction to Jack Black, <laughs> it's not great. It it feels so strange. I, I, I feel like this is weirder. Like, this is such a strange cast list. This is weirder than uh, than Bob Hoskins' um, Mario film. I don't, I don't think anything can get weirder than the Bob Hoskins' Mario film. <laughs> I, I've just, never even seen it, but surely nothing can be weirder than that. It's a stranger cast list. Like... I don't know. I don't know. These people, none of these people talk very much, and when they do, they're like really high pitched. Like think, they sound like children. I think Seth Rogen like would three make lines. Donkey Kong. I think that's quite yes, a good. Yes, Seth Rogen's Donkey Kong's fine. Yeah, I and guess. I also, I evidently you disagree, but I also think Jack Black is good, and I also don't particularly have an issue with Anya Taylor Joy. I don't. Speaker. I think the idea. I, I think Charlie Day is Luigi now. I actually quite like Charlie Day. I haven't watched it since so it's for Sunny, but like I'm aware of him and I listen to interviews and I've you know I I, I don't I. He seems like a, a funny bloke. Uh, but I don't understand. Like, Luigi, it feels weird that these characters are going to be speaking in, I imagine, American accents and also having, like, full-on in-depth conversations where the whole thing is they've been online, in games, mm. like, kind of just saying one or two words or little sentences. Surely they like, won't have American accents because their voices are so iconic. I think they've got to be. I mean, why else would you go for Chris Pratt as Mario if you wanted him to know. not this sound like Chris Pratt? So weird. This is a voice. You can't give Mario an American accent. This film comes out on the 21st of December in 2022, so we've got one here, which is um, an important date to me because that is my birthday. So this is the best birthday present I'm going to receive. Is, <laughs> that is a good on my 22nd birthday, birthday, I'm going to be receiving the gift of the untitled, the currently untitled Mario film. Um, yeah, I mean, I just kind of use the Garfield thing to segue into it, really, but that's also going to happen. Um, and I don't feel like anyone's asking for it, but you know, whether you want it or not, there's a, there's a, there's a guy, there's a Garfield film coming out. That's, that's Hollywood for you. No one asks for it, but we get it anyway. And most of the time it works yeah. out well. Do you say most of the time? Hmm. Some of the time. I think most of the time films people don't ask for end up well. Yeah. I don't know. I do think I guess. the Garfield movie will be an exception. Or the Mario movie more so than the Garfield movie. Because like Garfield doesn't have the iconic voice because it comes from a comic strip. I think there realistically there are there are ten there are ten Playmobil movies for every Lego movie in my head. <laughs> I've never I seen a Playmobil movie, but I do love the, the Lego franchise. I d did anyone ever watch the Playmobil movie? 
I have no idea. Did the people? I don't even know if the editors watched after it. I think they probably just skipped <laughs> through it. Did anyone see the Playbill movie? I don't. I don't think it exists. I said Scott Pilgrim comes out in 2012 in the intro. By the way, it doesn't. It came out in 2010. My apologies. Okay. Apologies. Let's talk about. Let's talk about Scott Pilgrim versus top, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. So, and Edgar Wright in general. So, Edgar Wright, of course, is. Uh, just obviously talking is worth talking about right now because last night Zoho just released, but has also probably been one of the most revered uh, English actor, uh, English directors, sorry, of the last twenty years, um, and for good reason. I, I personally am a massive fan of Shaun of the Dead, and I've put it in a lot of our like top five and top ten lists. I put it in my uh, Desert Island discs a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago, um, and I've talked at length about how much I love, uh, you know, specifically Shaun of the Dead, really. Um, now I know you're a big fan. Um, I, I just want to point out first, I hadn't seen Scott Pilgrim before this, uh, which was like a big deal. A lot of people, most people I seem to think, seem to say that, that this is his best. If not this, they say Hot Fuzz, which is the only other one I haven't seen. So, um, I'm, I'm kind of lacking in that respect. So I'll, I'll have to watch Hot Fuzz, especially if we do a, a Cornetta Trilogy episode. Um, but you, of course, um, have talked about how you think Scott Pilgrim is the best Edgar Wright film. Now, would you consider yourself a fan of his in general? Yeah, definitely. I'm not a, I, I very much like Shaun of the Dead, but it's not my favorite purely because I don't like zombie stuff. And it's not because I was, I'm scared of it. I just generally don't like zombie stuff. No um, one else would have to clarify they don't think Shaun of the Dead is I know, yeah. <laughs> because they're scared of it. But I feel like you had to do that. I did have to clarify that I'm not scared of Shaun of the Dead. Um, I just have a general dislike of zombie themed media, even like the best. I'm still not like, I don't enjoy it. Um, so Hot Fuzz, it's probably between Hot Fuzz and Scott Pilgrim as my favourites, to be honest. But he is one of my favourite directors, particularly even his serious stuff, like Last Night in Soho is more serious. Um, he's one of my favourite comedy directors. Like his visual comedy is so perfect. And it's probably at its height in... Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and I also think, um, what's it called? The other Scott one I'm doing. Scott Pilgrim. Um, yeah. And he is one of my favourite visual directors. I think the way. Well, I'd, I'd say that Scott Pilgrim, Scott Pilgrim is his most visual work. Oh, yeah. Of course, I haven't seen Hot Fuzz. But yeah. Scott Pilgrim is his most visual work. So describing him as a visual director, I don't think you're going to get much further than, much more stronger yeah. than this. But I think there are a lot um, of visual jokes, particularly in Hot Fuzz. Like, I know you've not seen it, but I'm sure you've seen the picture of Timothy Dalton in front of the picture of Timothy Dalton. Yeah, of course, yeah. Smile, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hot Fuzz is just, it's probably the funniest. And it, you know, the more I'm talking about it and thinking about it, I probably prefer Hot Fuzz to Scott Pilgrim. But by the time we get around to talking about Scott Pilgrim, I'll probably end up preferring Scott Pilgrim. Kind of flip flop between those two. I'm not counting last night in Soho by the in the in this by the way. So maybe yeah. when we get to my review, I'll say actually my favorite is last night in Soho. Maybe you won't. Now, um, just a question: uh, on the, Have you seen the Sparks Brothers, which he also released earlier this year? Uh, I have not. I was meant to go and yeah, see it in the cinema, yeah. and when I got there, the projector had broken. Yes, because that you know when it comes to like his filmography, most people have seen the majority of his work is very. You know, popular media hasn't made many films, and he made you know six major films. Um, but Sparks Brothers, of course, a documentary he made earlier this year, and he's also always forgotten film A Fistful of Fingers, which I believe came out about in nineteen ninety five. So, you know, about ten years before you know he he kind of really mm. took off with John of Ed, which 
no one no one has seen yeah um but yeah so i i'll kind of using that to you you've said you've actually kind of talked your way out of your scott pilgrim praise um because you're talking about hot fuzz so much but if you want to just because this is kind of a mixture of the of i've never seen and um and a normal now showing um so if you want to kind of do the thing we do on i've never seen where you kind of give it First, can you give Scott Pilgrim um, a bit of description of, of what happens? Can you give the synopsis? Um, and then can you give your reasoning on why you consider it so highly and, and kind of, you you know, bef- you're not reviewing it because it's my review, but what 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 do you, in a short form, what, what makes you love that film so much? Well, I first saw Scott Pilgrim. They released it for the 20th to the 10th anniversary last year. So I went to see it for the first time in the cinema and um, it was... I, I knew the vague outline of it. That was my experience of it. And Scott Pilgrim is about this boy called Scott Pilgrim and his new girlfriend, Ramona, he kind of gets with her. They become boyfriend and girlfriend, but before they can like make it official and be together happily ever after, he has to fight. I can't remember how many. Six, is it? Six of her ex boy evil ex boyfriends. Seven. 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 As in um, seven deadly sins. Oh yeah, of course of the six, seven of her evil ex-boyfriends and they're played by um, various... exes pardon exes is that what i said is that not what i said you said ex-boyfriends oh sorry her evil exes oh that's true yes evil exes i apologize i forgot about that um yeah her seven evil exes played by a variety of people such as chris evans and they all show up and have very over the top uh, unrealistic comic booky fights and only when he's defeated all of the evil exes can he be with Ramona. And that is the, the plot of Scott Pilgrim, really. And I love it so much because, like I was saying a second ago, it's a very visual film because it's based on a comic book, I think, or a graphic novel or something like that. Um, he brings, Edgar Wright brings a lot of the comic book stuff to the film. Like when they're fighting, it's some of the best comic book action ever. And I'm included, it sounds ridiculous because it's Michael Cera, but it's some of the best comic book fighting action I've ever seen in a film, like beating out Marvel, DC, all of that. Some of this is absolutely amazing. Like, you know, the it's like the old classic Batman shows where like Kaboom comes up on the screen. Yeah, yeah. And pow sure. and things like that. And it's just really, really interesting to watch visually. And there's also a lot of visual comedy that I love in Scott Pilgrim. And mm-hmm. Michael Cera is great and he's so charming in this this mm-hmm. part and all of the supporting cast are great and i think this is kind of edgar wright doing edgar wright the most like this is yeah. kind of him just saying like i'm mm-hmm. gonna do what i do best and i'm gonna do it for two hours and it's brilliant and i really really love it okay um what did you think of yeah it? yeah uh well Yes, of course. Yeah, and you've 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 said a lot of things that I I, I was going to say, and uh, and I'm still going to say it again. I'm going to just repeat a lot of what you said. Um, yeah. So there are certainly films that their reputation precedes them. I think there's an awful lot of films that when you come into with that reputation, and the two ways about it is that either you kind of you're tricked into thinking that you like a film more than you do because of the reputation of it, or you know, or you end up being disappointed because of reputation you because you, your expectations were so high or of course in the rare cases you know you imagine they've up that expectation and that's when you know great films you understand why they're loved so much and when i kind of went into this film um 
and it is I understood the the concept to a degree. I understood, you know, that the seven evil exes thing is a boy chasing this this you know, this is kind of the manic pixie dream girl thing in its most like obvious form. Um, Mary Liz Winston's um character Ramona Flowers. Um and Michael Sarah trying to chase her by by fighting all these these bad guys. I understood the premise and I understood it was a very the visual style and I understood, you know, that this is kind of the most obvious or most Edgar Wright Edgar Wright. Um, and so I came into this and kind of knew what to expect, but was excited to take the challenge on, excited to see what happened. And very early on, I found myself almost overwhelmed to the degree of this, you know, this is Edgar Wright with zero roadblocks in the head this is the most you know this is batshit this is super stylized and everything that good comes in this film comes from the nature of it's the visual and it's comic booky and there's explosions and fighting and it's the way that it, the narrative is told by these kind of dreamlike sequences where one day just kind of turns into the other you know he just you know opens the door and it's the next next day you know it's just suddenly wakes up in the next day and the way that each you know the, the, and it's it's very batshit and it's ultra stylized and that left me very early on a little bit confused a little bit kind of standing in the middle of the plot and not really knowing what was happening i feel like the the breakneck pacing and just you know batshitness the wackiness the 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 quirkiness of it was suffocating at the beginning i felt that 20 minutes half an hour in i felt like i had no real foothold on what the plot was doing because i was being thrown through all these different lights and colors and sounds and i was thinking oh my god but this film isn't actually good this film is actually quite shit i, I don't know what the reputation here is i feel like this is going to be a really awkward podcast because this film is talked about for all things and it's this feels like one of those films a bit like the social network where it feels sacrilegious to even insult it at this point. It's one of those films where it's so loved that the idea that like, you know, I always remember on the podcast, I, I said I gave the, when I first watched Social Network, I gave it a nine and Jordan was kind of taken aback. And I was like, I give it a film a nine out of 10. Like, how is that? And he's like, oh, well, what's wrong with it? I was like, that's mad. You'd never say that about a normal film. So I was like, half an hour in, I was like, oh my God. And then the next hour was almost perfect cinema. Um, and I completely take back my, well, I completely dropped the issues that I had with the beginning. Um, once it, it kind of said, the problem is, is that you, you never really have a footing on, on what's happening and it's getting taken so long that you don't really feel any connection with the characters and you don't really know what to think of each person. And then once the character of Ramona is really starting to get explored and the re relationship between the two begins, at that point, the plot really starts to, to, kind of hone in on what is important and what what matters and that allows you to spend that time with scott pilgrim of course that you know michael sarah's character and, and elizabeth winstead romantic's character and once the premise and the objective becomes more clear uh you know the, the road path seems a lot more understandable and you begin to become more accepting of the kind of wackiness around it because you know what the ultimate goal is and you understand what the the each beat is going to be you know when they throw a few random bits of wackiness in there you can kind of just accept it for what it is which is visually stunning beautiful sounding and often hilarious i mean what's 
so good about this. You could talk about the visuals and the thing, but what really boils it down to is that this film is a very, very funny film with a very, very good script. Um, the said the visual jokes hilarious, but the main thing is is that we've got some very likable characters and some very hateable characters that provide dialogue that is quotable, that is laugh out loud funny, that is memorable, and that that really like holds this together and i think that like i understand all the praise i don't necessarily feel exactly as strongly as everyone else because of the nature of the beginning i really felt a bit you know said suffocated um but i think once you get into the degree the casting like this has got an absolute ensemble cast and you were talking you say like we've got obviously the michael sarah and elizabeth winstead, mary elizabeth winstead but brie larson's here chris evans uh, anna kendrick orby plaza uh brandon ruth um loads of characters that only show up for a minute at a time i think um bill hader um there's loads of characters that are in one scene two scenes johnny simmons um alison pill loads of people that are here just for two minutes and a while uh, that really give it this like proper feel of depth and interest and you can really feel like um you're in a, a full-on world which you know i think that there's an awful lot of attempts Maybe in the Spider-Verse is the biggest competitor here. But this might be the most faithful adaptation of a comic book ever in the way that it no film has ever felt more comic book-y. Um, it, it, it really feels like you're on a page, and not necessarily Marvel and DC, that type of comic, but in the kind of batshit wackiness that you'd see in a Beano or a Viz or, you know, that, that kind of where the boundaries are a kind of questionable or, or very anime as well actually kind of that, that kind of or manga i guess in this case um with you know the, the fighting styles and stuff you talk about you know how this the, the fight cinematography lines up with with marvel films i think especially in the, the kind of final battle you definitely could say that it was it's it's up there and and a lot of the stuff is aided by visually but all the performances are top notch the music is top notch the the the, the cinematography is beautiful the, the, it's 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 hard to say many issues that I have with it past about an hour, about past about half an hour, sorry. Um, and actually, I'll say that Brie Larson, her like when she does her song as as um, as Envy, when she does her her musical performance, it's actually an absolute banger as well. Like I was like, as soon as I was like, that is actually good music because most of the music here is like kind of purpose. Quite a lot of the the bands that play here are kind of purposefully a bit crap or a little bit amateurish, but then Brie Larson stuff is is, is world class. Um, yeah, I was just, uh, I was just, yeah, I was, um, I understand what all the hype is for. Um, this is, of course, we talked about Tenet being, um, Nolan at his most Nolan. We talked about Friends Dispatch being, um, Wes Anderson at his most Wes Anderson. This is obviously Edgar Wright at his most Edgar Wright. And even the stuff that he's made, you know, all the stuff that he's made since, you know, Baby Driver and Last Night in Soho, whilst it is going in a different direction, um, definitely feels a bit lot more grounded than, than this, where this is a bit more like just, an explosion of color and light in, in the most Edgar Wright fashioned way. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful picture and, um, yeah, I, I appreciate all of the, uh, the facets of it. Yeah, I completely agree with pretty much everything that you said. When I first watched it, I had no idea what to expect. And the first kind of 20 minutes are kind of jarring. Cause it's like, this is not like, cause it's not like hot fuzz and, the world's end Shaun of the dead and when i first saw it or baby driver and when i first saw it those were the only ones that i'd seen and it it does kind of take you aback a bit and you kind of have to realize what you're dealing with and once you do and you just accept it 
you're not bored with it. You just, it's brilliant. Yeah, and I, I wonder, it, it, I really do wonder, if I went to go rewatch this now, the first half an hour again today, um, which I, I really should have done, uh, I wonder if now I am understanding how good the film is, I enjoy it so much, I wonder if I'd be more willing to, on a rewatch, kind of accept that at the beginning and just kind of live with it, or I th- I've got a feeling that I still would think, okay, this is not the best way to begin it, because I think it's a little bit thrown at the deep end. I think that maybe they go naught sixty, maybe shouldn't have been that quick. I know what you mean, but I think I think once you get on board with it, you're fine. So I think going back and rewatching it would just be a lot more fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, uh, definitely. I, I think. Well, I, I think that that's definitely definitely a possibility. Um, yeah, of course. First yeah. watch is a bit jarring. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And even though you know it, you can feel, you know that that. The, the Edgar Wright, you know, keeps saying his name all the time. That uh, you can you can feel like his all the this is the strongest form of like you you get little bits of it in each of his films, and this is like it to max. You know, his style of comedy, anything, and, and the you know, the visual nature of it, and the slapstick nature of it, it feels thing very him. But then also because it's so turned up to the max, it does mean that. It's kind of you know it, it really really does stand out against Hot Fuzz, Shaun of the Dead, World's End, especially you know those films that, that made him the, the, his comedies. Like this is so unique to well in general, but from those as well. Yeah, I completely agree. It's it's completely different in every way. From I mean, this I'd, I'd probably just say this is an action comedy. It's very comedy. Um, but it's a completely different take on comedy from Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead. It's it's completely new and refreshing, and it's it's just insane how much fun it is. Like it's just kind mm. of like a lot of people for the past few weeks since Last Night in Soho came out, I've seen a lot of people say like Edgar Wright, oh, he's just style over substance. He's style over substance, and I'm like, there's nothing wrong with just having a film that is hyper stylized and balls to the wall fun like there's nothing wrong with that i don't mm-hmm. want to go and see scott pilgrim or hot fuzz and expect some kind of deep social commentary sometimes i just want to go to the cinema and have so much fun and that's what scott pilgrim is to the max like you said it's edgar wright doing little bits of what he did in Shaun of the dead and hot fuzz and on this he just takes it to the max dials it up to 11 and there's nothing stopping him and it's perfect we don't see enough of Michael Sarah these days. We don't. I feel like, like I feel. Does anyone dislike Michael Sarah? I don't think anyone's he, got any reason to dislike him. He, he seems like a lovely chap. Yeah, he's like he is the, um, you know, like he's the in Pokemon. You know, you've got the the three evolutions. Like he's the the minor evolution of of um I was gonna call him Zuckerberg then of um <laughs> what's his who's um Jesse, Jesse Eisenberg. Eisenberg. Yeah, he's like the, the mini Jesse Eisenberg. I love the before we go on to the ratings, um which I'm gonna do fairly swiftly. And uh I just want to quickly say that I love how whilst this is as I said this feels formulaic to a degree, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um but you kind of you understand that very early on that you're going to be going through you know seven of these fights and seven of the thing and, and and kind of going through each one of the X's. 
I really appreciate how they've made every encounter, every character and every battle so unique. I think it's it could have been yeah. very bogged down if they're doing the same thing over and over, but the emphasis that each one does, especially because you know, multiple of them have stuff to do with music and music is a very central theme of this film. It's about he's in a band, his ex was in a band, you know, obviously a characters that I guess I wouldn't mention just because it kind of is a bit spoilery and this film came out 11 years ago, but a lot of the, you know, some of his, his opponents were in bands um, because it's very music based, you know, you could have ended up being a lot of very similar fights if it's all to do with music and entertainment, but they all feel very unique and the art style that's used around them is very different. Um, and I think that that's just, you know, you can, that credit to the, the direction, credit to the VFX team. Um, it's very good that they managed to make things that was felt so fun individually and 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 very unique. And it, it feels like, as I say, it feels like half of a a comic book and half of a video game come to life. Um, and yeah, it, it, style is the word here, um, but it's style in in the best way, style in the most stylish way. Um, so when I go to ratings, um, I'm going to give this a, and I know it's. I'm gonna give this a. I'm gonna give this an eight and a half, right? So that might sound a little bit harsh because of how much I praised it, but I really thought that the first hour and a half, or the first half an hour, were quite a lot getting, uh, to get into, and it did left me a decent way into the film, a third of the way into the film, kind of feeling like I'm, I'm not sure if I'm feeling it. But the next hour was just so good um, that I, it, it made up, and the cinematography and stuff, uh, the cinematography, the visuals, the the color grade or the way that this film looks and sounds is great from start to finish. Doesn't matter what minute, what problem I had, like it all looks beautiful. So eight and a half for me here. And when it comes to my man of the match, um, which is a very tough decision because there's so many different moving parts here. I, uh, I'm going to have to go for as much as it's not as easy. As it sounds because the visual effects is so good. The sound's so good. I think a lot of the performances are great. The cinematography is great. I'm going to still have to go for the director, Edgar Wright, because, again, like to capture all these different worlds in such an amazing way, to make this truly feel like a comic book's come to life, to to get so many different characters and actors and everything all working in such a great way, even though a lot of people only have one line, two lines, they still feel pretty important. I think that just getting everything here, because it's, it's essentially just uh, an explosion of different things, to get it all to work together, I'm going to go for, for the director. Edgar Wright. Okay, nice. Yeah, that makes Whew, sense. Moment I, to breathe. I agree. Moment to breathe. I'd also pick Edgar Wright. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Um, we don't, obviously, this is you know, kind of the eye I've not, never seen, so I wouldn't have you do a review and you rate it, but yeah. obviously, you've, you've talked to your thoughts and you've just said, you know, you'd give it to Edgar Wright as well. Do I guess, you know, whilst we're here, do you have an, what would you rate this film? Do you know? Uh, I'd probably give this like the I was thinking about it while you were speaking like I do have some kind of issues with it it's not flawless so but I did just enjoy it and I had a lot of fun so I'd probably give it a nine and a half because my if I'm being minuscule if I'm being really um, OTT and I said all the, everyone played the, all the acting so well with the casting so well, um, Kieran Culkin uh, his performance and his character I wasn't particularly uh, in love with oh I was gonna say I, I thought it was probably the weak point. If I had really? to be harsh, yeah, I, I don't know. I thought his character just was just annoying and not in the way that they wanted him to be. Um, oh no, I thought he was great. I, again, I wouldn't really have an issue with it. Like if I was being really, you know, really picky, that's probably yeah. what I'd say. And it's probably if I really wished it, I might not agree with that. It's just a, a minor thing, I guess. If I was just trying to further justify not giving it a nine, um, but yeah, fair enough. 
there's a kind of battle um, on the podcast right now between uh, which film I'm trying to ignore and not think about or not mention as much as uh, as as much uh, between Red Notice and Army of Thieves, um, which I just I've <laughs> kind of broken by just mentioning now, but I've just tried to ignore them as concepts because. Um, Red Notice, I can't believe, hasn't been released about 12 times already. Um, so I don't know if you, I'm, I'm assuming you're aware, but if everyone's not aware, it's the, it's like a spy thing with Gal Gadot, Ryan Reynolds and Dwayne Rock Johnson. And all the promotional images look like I've seen them about a million times. Yeah, um, it looks very generic. Yeah. And well, I think that, is that just got released or is released the next? I think it just got released it, today. Oh, is it? It's today. Maybe might be got released. Maybe it's released soon or something. It's, it's coming soon, or it's just been I released or something. Haven't paid attention to it, to be honest. <laughs> but um, it stars Gal Gadot, which is why I'm mentioning it because you said about some news with Gal Gadot. Yes, she just before we started recording, it was announced that she is in the very final stages of being cast as the evil queen in the Disney's live-action Snow White film with Rachel Zegler. Now I didn't. I was completely unaware they were making. I don't a know Snow how White you've film. escaped that news. Is this been how long? When was this announced? Recently, many moons ago. Not right. like the past couple of weeks. Like it may like the past year or so because of COVID has just been a blur. So it could have been like a year ago, but it it wasn't very recently. Right. Okay. So this is like the latest in the line of like Aladdin. Uh, Beauty and the Beast, Cinderella. Yeah. Like they're remaking all their old films, but live action. Yeah, Snow White and The Little Mermaid are the two next ones. Little Mermaid. But there was there. a Snow White film not that long ago, wasn't there? There was like two Snow White films that came out. We're talking about this for the podcast. There's yeah. two Snow White films came out about ten years ago, and does anyone remember them? Snow White and the Huntsman and Mirror Mirror. But you, yeah, no so, one remembers them. Snow White the Huntsman at the time was quite a big deal, but it feels like people have moved, yeah, moved on very it's just quickly from that. into obscurity now. Yeah, I, I've just it's to be fair, the cast isn't it? Chris, uh, Kristen Stewart, Charlie Theron, Chris Hemsworth, Ian McShane, Bob Hoskins, Ray. Win- oh my God, yeah, Ray Winston was a dwarf, wasn't he? Oh, he's a CGI dwarf. Oh, I've I haven't that. seen that. Oh. <laughs> That sounds exciting. There was a a sequel with um, Emily Blunt and Jessica Chastain in it. I did not know that. Oh, that is just remembering that the uh, yeah Ian McShane, Bob Hoskins, Ray Winston, Nick Frost, Toby Jones, Eddie Martian, Johnny Harris, and Brian Gleeson were CGI dwarves. Oh God! And this apparently, according to Wikipedia, this caused a protest from the little people of America because obviously they um, dwarves don't have many. You know, major roles and stuff, and yeah. they'd be kind of taken away by a CGI Ray Winston um, and his <laughs> the worst type of Ray Winston. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think a Russian-speaking Ray Winston, arguably, is worse. When we yeah, uh, we let's do a mirror, mirror Ray, uh, not Ray, <laughs> Ray Winston, a mirror, mirror Snow White and the Huntsman and Snow White Triple Bill when the uh, the live oh, action. <laughs> To go along with that, that oh, was the love guru. Different. And, uh, That's a whole other group. monster. A Ray Winston mm-hmm. special. A Ray Winston special, yeah. Um, what's that film called when um, he's got like a sun ta- uh, sunburn on the cover? Oh, is it Sexy Beast? 
Sexy beast. We'll do sexy beast. Sexy beast. What a what a okay. what a picture for Ray Winston. Yeah. We're going to move on now into uh, the 2017 film Baby Driver. Now, I'll, I'll do um, my synopsis and intro thing because you're the one that's going to be reviewing this. Um, now, I, I saw this for the first time a few months ago. Um, so, I'm going to try my best to remember um, what happens because I tried. So, Baby Driver is the story of Baby, who um, is a, a character played by Ansel Elgore. Now, we'll come to that later. Um, who is a getaway driver um, who uses music and sounds to you to time himself and his getaways in his impressive you know fights against trying to get away from the police and such um, and does it always in the time to his music um, whilst he's doing that he is uh, trying to earn money for his um, blind um, is it the blind he's deaf not blind deaf sorry Deaf um, carer who, who's brought him up, trying to earn him money, um, whilst he think, and he kind of wants to get out of this one. He wants to get out of the the gang. He wants to get out of the business, uh, take his money, and go off with his uh, newfound love, played by Lily James. But obviously, some things start to get in the way as he realizes it's not an easy game to get out of. Um, as he's run, uh, in, but as he has to deal with his crime boss, Doc played by Kevin Spacey, who we'll also go quickly mention. So, obviously, there's the elephant in the room here, which is the two main characters in this film um, have since been involved in sexual assault allegations, um, I guess would be the the, the, the umbrella term, um, you know, both of that nature. I think, you know, Kevin Spacey's yeah. got a whole long list, and that's what he goes. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a big, big, dirty awful situation um now obviously um we ha- you know you have to uh, distance uh, actor from performance here um so i guess there's we uh, we have to kind of proceed uh, with with a bit of caution but you know we aren't we obviously if if they are guilty they they're awful people he has no thing nothing to say on the matter i guess um but obviously, when we talk about their performances here, it has nothing to reflect on character. You know, I, I think that Ansel Elgort is uh, excellent in this film. Um, for example, um, he's still an awful guy if, if what is said to be true is true. Um, but yeah, so my thoughts on the film. I watched this the first time a few months ago um, and I really, really enjoyed it. I um, really appreciated a. This is the first kind of, even though it has comedic elements, this is the first major move away from comedy being the focus um, in Edgar Wright's um, relatively short directorial career and um, kind of is more focused on on the action and the crime um, involved here. And I think the use of music here, I, mean, I think it's obvious that Edgar Wright, I mean, it's obvious if you watch his films that just how uh, much of, of a music head uh, Edgar Wright is, all of his films really have an important element of music in them. Um, and I think Baby Driver is no different. The way that music is used is, is very entertaining. The set pieces, the action set pieces are up there with any top action film. And above all, whilst having a, a enjoyable, entertaining plot um, and, and, and lovable characters, interesting characters, interesting dynamics, most of all, it's incredibly fun. 
Uh, I guess that's one thing you can say about almost all of Edgar Wright's work. Incredibly fun. Um, so, what did you watch? Uh, what, what did you watch? Well, I know you watched Baby Driver. What <laughs> did you think upon a rewatch of Baby Driver? Um, well, pretty much the same. I was surprised because, like I said, I hadn't seen it since it very first came out. And at the time, I wasn't particularly into films, so I wasn't paying like proper attention. I was just kind of watching it because it was on. Um, whereas now watching it properly, I rewatched it tonight, in fact. Um, and I kind of feel the same way. This is a, a step away from comedy, which obviously is what Edgar Wright is probably most known for. The Cornetto trilogy, arguably what he's most known for, is that's completely, those are just comedies. Um, comedy is a big part of Scott Pilgrim. It's a big part of this, but this is, like you say, this is definitely more of a kind of a, yeah, an yeah. action thriller. Not Maybe not thriller is the right word, but it's Yeah, I'd say cr- action, action crime. Yeah. yeah. Action. I mean, the same with The Last Night in Soho. There are definitely elements of, of comedy in Last mm. Night in Soho, but it is definitely, you know... It, it's evident that he is moving away from comedy in general. Yeah. Um, but this is, um, to me, I think this is a great, when he reached his, um, what's the word I'm thinking of, like peak in terms of his experience, obviously, apart from last night. So this is his most recent film. So this is where he's had his most experience. Um, and it kind of shows for me, he's a, he's always, you know, done the good uh, steady cam long takes, which I, always i'm a fan of and in this the um the sequence after the opening car chase is just a big long take it's about three minutes long plays song plays over it and it's just perfect and the choreography behind it all is perfect the opening scene is one of the best car chase sequences ever put to film certainly in modern films um and it's one of the best ways to introduce us to this film we get what it's about it's about this guy who is the driver for bank robbers uh, and, and for criminals, and he's amazing at what he does. But then the next scene, we find out that he's more—he's more than that. He's a person. He's got a personality, and he cares about people. Um, and I think that follows all the way through the film. I don't think that this is as as perfect as I think Scott Pilgrim is. I do have a, a few more issues with this. I don't think the performances are as good. I don't think Ansel Elgort is as good as. Uh, he, uh, it should have been or could have been um you know comparing it like we've just spoken about scott pilgrim i think michael series was a much better lead for scott pilgrim than ansel elgort was for um baby driver but you know kind of ignoring ansel elgort and scott um and kevin spacey because they are horrible and it is difficult to watch films particularly when characters like kevin spacey are playing despicable people and what he says is really menacing things. It's kind of, it does take me out of it a bit. And I do find it difficult sometimes to separate the art from the artist. So that does kind of drag it down, which is depressing and upsetting, but it, it just does. And I can't help that. That's, you know, when I see Kevin Spacey, that's what I think of now. When I see Ansel Elgort, that's what I think of now. And yeah, so I talked about this before, when I first watched Baby Driver, and I talked yeah. about it on the podcast, that like, I enjoy this film a lot more because I like to imagine that that's James Spader. I just, in my mind's eye, this yeah. is a film that's got James Spader. I think I said Miles Teller, but I couldn't think of anyone else young. And I say, yeah, we'll say Miles Teller, yeah. I don't know. Um, and then I, I find that it's a far better film when I just pretend that, even though Kevin Spacey, of course, is an absolutely excellent actor and I absolutely yeah. adore Kevin Spacey's work, and it's which makes it more annoying that he's, you know, probably a pedophile. Yeah. 
but but yeah, I I do think that the performance Kevin Spacey is incredible in this because he he's, mm-hmm. he always does that menacing thing very well, um, and he's also very funny, um, but I I just kind of find it difficult to look past him as a person now. Um, but Ansel Elgort, I was genuinely quite underwhelmed with his performance. I thought you know it was serviceable, it got us through, but overall I was kind of meh. I thought that the the way the action scenes were directed clearly incredibly well choreographed but it didn't look overtly choreographed there are a few things where i kind of think that's a bit ridiculous like i can take a bit of suspension of disbelief but then it gets to a point where it's kind of like that's a bit stupid that's a bit stupid you know the odd thing just being a bit too convenient for it and stuff like that i think that the ending is satisfying I don't think it's perfect. I think it's satisfying. It's nice. We're not doing spoilers, are we? Uh, no, I try to avoid spoilers. No, all right. it, it's nice that it's not your typical Hollywood ending that you'd expect from a film like this. And the big thing that I took away from this was just the action and Edgar Wright's direction. I think his direction here is flawless. And the way that he directs the action sequences, it's unique. It's not like... You know, it's not just well-directed, it's unique, it's different. No one else directs car chase scenes like he does in this. No one else directs just the scene of people sitting down in a cafe or a bar like this. The way that he uses the tension and the camera is is flawless here. But there are a few kind of story beats that I don't fully buy into. I don't fully buy into the relationship between Lily James's uh, Barbara and... Ansel Elgort's baby, I don't fully buy into that I think it's kind of rushed, they don't get enough time to develop with one another yeah, uh, and Edgar Wright's, not Edgar Wright's um, baby's kind of backstory into all of this as well with his parents, I don't feel like that's fleshed out enough and with his I think it's his foster dad or something the person who raised him um, I don't feel like their relationship is fleshed out as much as it could have been um, so there are a few issues with this, it's not my favourite Um but I still very much enjoy it. And like I say, even though it's not my favourite, technically I think this is Edgar Wright at his best. His direction in this is at its best. Um, even if the film as a whole is not necessarily one of my favourites. I think um, someone, uh, you're the same, I'm assuming, um, isn't like you know a car person or anything. Hmm. Um, I think it's very impressive that this film is very based on a lot of car chases and car mechanics and like there's yeah. an awful lot of car chase scenes and they're all very well done and they're very, very enjoyable. Um, whereas I felt like, especially in the earlier versions of, of series like Fast and Furious, that that became the problem for me, that I was not enjoying watching these cars drive about, um, like especially the first four Fast and Furious films. Um, and I'm comparing an Edgar Wright film to Fast and Furious, um, but for someone that isn't into into that kind of thing, it is done in a visually very entertaining way and and yeah. a way that obviously is matters with the plot. Um, I will just quickly talk about uh, one thing that we haven't really touched on, which is the chemistry and also the casting, the acting um, behind the kind of getaway crew. Obviously, oh, we yeah. talked about the main three, which is main three characters in this film are Ansel Elgort, uh, Kevin Spacey, and Lily James. Um, of course, she's not involved in the getaway crew. But the other people, John Hamm, Jamie Foxx, Isaac Gonzalez, John Bernthal, uh, uh, and for some reason, Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, they all... Um, 
they all uh they they're all like together as as their getaway crew and they're all kind of working together and it's a very very good dynamic and i think they all bring something very different they're all very unique yeah. characters even though they don't have much like they don't necessarily all have a great amount of screen time mm-hmm. um i think that like just the mix of personalities and stuff makes for a very entertaining watch and i think like getting them all in i think you know john ham is is arguably one of the best might be the best performance here for me um, yeah i agree i think john ham and jamie fox are the two best here um jamie fox plays this character that's just really unlikable and kind of constantly interjecting himself or injecting himself into scenes where you know the other characters don't want him there and it feels like he's not meant to be there he's kind of invading their space again and it he plays it so well and john ham john ham plays this kind of arrogant but distressed character as well really excellently and just to piggyback on the thing you said about fast and furious which is partly what i was talking about with the, the car chases being directed so well and also kind of links back to Scott Pilgrim as well. A lot of this is car chase, then break, then car chase, then break, then car chase. And it doesn't do what Fast and Furious does, which is car chase. And then, okay, how can we do this differently? Oh, let's just have an absurd stunt. Let's fly a car through a building. This is just, how can we shoot this differently to make it, you know, it's still cars chasing on a road. We're not going to go to space. We're not going to throw cars through well, buildings. Yeah, well, you're comparing it with Fast and Furious 9. Uh I, as a Fast and Furious expert, I was comparing it to the first four. But... Well, yeah, but even then, it's they kind of, eventually in the Fast and Furious franchise, they realised this is just car chase after car chase after car chase. We need to think of ways to spice it up. And they like just went with stunts. How can we make it more extreme, more over the top? Whereas with this, every car chase felt like it could have actually happened. Um, mm. felt very real but they all felt very unique as well very different because mm. the way that they were filmed and then there's even one chase on foot that was filmed really really well and and directed really really well and also i mentioned this in the uh opening thing about blade one of the coolest moments in cinema that involves sunglasses in blade oh yeah i'll do the blade one first in blade someone steals blade sunglasses and he's wearing them this is a spoiler for blade by the way but it came out like 23 years ago so no spoiler warning necessary, but there is one anyway. But yeah, someone steals Blade's sunglasses. Blade then decapitates them, and as their head is flying through the air, he takes the sunglasses off the decapitated head and puts them back on his own head, which right. is insanely cool. In Baby Driver, which I think might be cooler slightly, Baby Driver <laughs> is sat in the kind of HQ with all the other criminals, and John Berthnall wax his glasses off or takes his glasses off and baby just pulls another pair of glasses out of his pocket and puts them on straight away and then john berthnall black slaps him across the face and they fall off and then he pulls out another pair of sunglasses and puts those on straight away and it's not like the center of the joke it's not the center of this frame he does it in the background so it's not even like hey hey look at this joke it's just something that happens in the background and i think it's so cool like someone takes your sunglasses off you just put another pair on. Someone takes those off, you just put another pair on. It's, it was awesome. And that was like, my favourite moment in the film was the sunglasses bit. It's great. The, the, um, that, I guess, shows like the even in the film, which is way more serious and is a way more a move towards um, thing, there's still kind of comedic mm. elements to, to that. And, yeah. and whilst that is cool, there is also an element of comedy to that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I just want to, on the subject of Fast and Furious, I just have some regrets 
which is that we did the Fast and Furious 9 episode ages ago. This is really a random um, tangent to go. Um, we did the Fast and Furious 9 episode ages ago, and I, I did that thing where I watched all eight Fast and Furious films for a five-minute segment on that episode, um, which is insane, and I think it shows my dedication to this podcast. And when I did, I don't think that I actually ever gave Fast and Furious 7, sorry, Furious 7, the props that it really deserves. I don't think I actually said, I don't think I made it apparent how much I like that film. So I just want to make that clear for the record, that Fast, that Furious 7, sorry, is um action masterpiece. And I feel like I'd need to make that clear, that that film is way better than I've made it out to be. So it's an action masterpiece. It's fucking so fun. It's so good. But you have to watch six first. Fair enough. And for that, you have to watch five. But it is so good. It is so good. Um, yeah, it's cracking. It's fucking cracking. Uh, my earliest memory, Baby Driver. Um, because I wasn't really into films until quite recently, until a couple of years ago, which is why there's so many of these films that I've never seen. Never seen Scott Pilgrim, whatever. I've never seen Hot Fuzz. That's what we're doing today. And the premise of this whole kind of mini series we do on the show. So I didn't remember it coming out. I don't remember his trailers because I just didn't care about films that much. But I remember that when I went to sixth form, I moved to sixth forms. I was doing a media, I did a media course at my second sixth form. And I sat next to a guy who was a bit weird. Um, and he was a, a proper cinephile. And he would never shut up about how good Baby Driver was. He just <laughs> constantly talked about like, oh, it's the best film of the year. I mean, it's unbelievable. Oh, my, it's so good. And he's like, he's, he's uh, this Kiwi bloke. He's from from uh, New Zealand. And he was just constantly going on about how much he loved the character of Baby and how he was like one of the greatest characters in, in like cinema. And he like, identified with Baby, um, which is probably not the kind of thing he'd probably shout about now. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, so I always kind of had a kind of slight underlying resentment for like, oh, God, I hope this film is shit. Um, <laughs> I can't remember what that guy was called, but that, that's my my memory of Baby Driver. So to come around and find that I actually really like that film, it was in a way disappointing. Um, so when it comes to ratings, what would you give it? Um, I I'm thinking an eight out of ten. Completely I fair? think it's yeah. Edgar Wright's. Uh, I'm not counting again. To be clear, I'm not counting last night in Soho in this to not give away what I feel about it. So discounting last night in Soho, I think this is his weakest film, um, but it's still a it, ten, which is. Do you, you think you think this is worse than The World's End? Yeah, I think The World's End has Do a you? lot of. Oh yeah, I don't know. That's a good point. I feel like I this think the drivers, World's for End for me, Driver is certainly better than The World's End in my opinion. Yeah, I feel like that. I feel like I really enjoyed The World's End. I do. It's the it's by far the weakest of the Cornetto trilogy. Um, but I don't know whether I... Because I, I like the relationships in The World's End. I, I didn't feel connected. Like my main issue is this was I didn't feel that I didn't buy into the relationship between Baby and Deborah. I did I enjoy the relationship between the characters in The World's End. And I believe them a lot better. So I do feel like this is... They're both 8 out of 10s to me. But I feel like this is... I just prefer The World's End a bit better. Okay, okay. Um... But it's still an 8 out of 10, which is like, it's his weakest film, yeah. it's an 8 out of 10. That goes to show yeah. how remarkable he is. Unless you give Last Night's Soho a 6. That's true. Or a 4. Or, or a any two. number other than that. Yeah, exactly. Um, but specifically an even number. Yeah. Okay, uh, what would you give your man of the match for this? Now, I also feel like this is quite a hard decision. This is um, This is a hard decision. I forgot to prepare one, so I'm just thinking off the top of my head. Um, you I have usually said it prepare one? Yeah, I usually don't have a think about it before. 
Mm. I, I have a commitment to this podcast. <laughs> well, don't are we just talk, talk I watched eight Fast and Furious films for a part <laughs> five minute segment. We just talked about this. Don't talk about commitment to me, honey, Jim. <laughs> but yeah, um I think I've said it a lot of times because I think I have a lot more issues with um this than I do with his others, but I have said several times throughout my little review that this is his best directing. I think this is where he is at his peak in terms of his directing. So I think I'm going to give it to to Edgar Wright. Yeah. Okay. Uh, interesting. Okay. So I trying to think of some sort of segue. Maybe I should have left the the Garfield news until now. Um, yeah, that's true. But I guess we're not going to delay the inevitable because it's time for the big one. It's time for one of my most anticipated films of the year. It's time to talk about one of the biggest films of the year. Um, one that has certainly got everyone talking on the internet, it seems, uh, and divided opinion to a degree. Um, we're talking, of course, about Last Night in Soho. So I will tell you uh, the same thing I said before, but I'm going to try and go into a little bit more detail. Okay, so the synopsis for Last Night in Soho is... Last Night's Oho is the newest film from F.M. Edgar Wright, obviously, uh, and it stars uh, Thomas McKenzie, Anya Taylor-Joy, and Matt Smith as the main characters. Um, Thomas McKenzie is a fashion designer from Cornwall who can, who is, well, she's she, aspiring fashion designer from Cornwall who experiences, is shown very, very early in the film. It's talked about how she sees her mother, um, kind of visions of her mother who died when she was very young. Uh, and very early in the film, she receives uh, a letter to say that she, she's going to university um, in London. Uh, she goes to university in London to, to learn fashion, London School of Fashion in Soho. And while she's there, she has a bit of a bad time and moves house. And then when she goes to sleep, she starts to travel back into the world of the 60s, the swinging 60s in London, in Soho. And she dreams about this singer called Sandy, who is played by Anya Taylor-Joy, also an aspiring singer who um, tries to woo the elite at the time. Uh, and meets this, um, falls in love with this manager, Jack, played by Matt Smith. Um, and then it turns out that Thomas McKenzie is starting to realise that perhaps her visions, her, her dreams may have actually happened as she starts to uncover links between the past and the present. Um, now, I don't know if I gave too much away or not enough away, but that was uh, the basic idea of what Last Night Soho is. Um so, without further ado, Lewis, this is the film, one of the films that I've been talking up. I said last week, you know, my most anticipated films were Dune, yeah. uh, House of Gucci, uh, French Dispatch, and this. And I'm sure you've been very excited as well. And I'm sure you've also been a bit worried because it is, yeah. to a degree, a horror film. Um, I was very worried, in fact. How did you find it? How did you find the horror? How did you find the film? How did you find Last Night in Soho? Well, I'll, I'll give a bit of an intro as to how I felt about this going into it uh, with regards to my uh, disdain for horror or aversion to horror, or rather. Um, I, I, yeah, fear of. It's not a disliking of the genre, it's just a scaredness, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, 
I I saw the very first trailer that came out, and it didn't really give anything away. I knew that it was going to be very it described as a horror, but I thought, oh, it's going to be a bit kind of thriller-y. I'm very excited. Then the second trailer came out, and everyone said it gave away too much. So I didn't watch it, and then it came on in the cinema, and I saw it, and I was like, this looks like a full-on horror film. I don't know if I can do this. To the extent where I had a ticket to see it at the London Film Festival, and I gave it away because I was too scared to go and see it on my own. That's how worried I was for this. But then, I wa- weird link to Tatan. I watched Tatan, and as I've said before, I checked the IMDb Parents Guide of films that I'm worried about. And I checked the IMDb Parents Guide of Last Night in Soho, and it said that it was less scary than Tatan. And I didn't find Tatan scary. So I thought, right, I can do it. So I went to see it, uh, and it, it was scary. It was scary, and I was scared, and I was on the edge of my seat throughout several sequences. The first hour or so, it was great, and it was just fun. And I was like, can we just stay vibing in the 60s with Anya Taylor-Joy? Do we have to turn this into a horror film? Inevitably, of course, it did, and it got a lot scary for me. Not very scary for the people I was with, because they like horror, but I was like, oh, this is scary, I need to look away. But I still really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would because of the elements of horror in it. I think Thomas and Mackenzie and Anya Taylor-Joy were absolutely fantastic in this film, even if Thomas and Mackenzie's Cornwall accent was a little bit kind of hit and miss. Um, But I thought Anya Taylor-Joy was magnificent in a very supporting role, and I also think Thomas and Mackenzie was amazing in the lead. She really... um, you know, this is Edgar Wright's first film with a woman as the lead, and Thomas oh yeah, never put that. Yeah, yeah. That. And uh, Thomas and Mackenzie blew it out of the park. Uh, I think it's Edgar. You, you say about her accent. I just want to say that Thomas and Mackenzie has a very unique and very weird voice, she and does. like she, she tries to kind of pull it in a bit of a Cornish way, into a degree. Yeah. But like, I thought she was putting on an accent to sound like a German Jew in Jojo Rabbit. It turns out that that's just her normal voice. She wasn't doing a well. voice. Yeah, like, she just sounds like that. So, yeah, there is an element of Cornwall, but it is just like she's got a weird voice. Yeah, like, she just talks normally as Thomas and Mackenzie, and then every now and again you'll get her, all right? And it's like, <laughs> ooh, that came out of nowhere. We love her. <laughs> it really was. It was like um, Danny in Hot Fuzz. It was... Oh, you've not seen Hot Fuzz. That <laughs> reference falls on deaf ears. <laughs> but yeah, um, her accent was a bit hit or miss, but most of the time it just sounded like Thomas and Mackenzie, so I could look past it. But um, she was really good in the lead. Um, Diana Rigg has a small supporting role in her final performance as well um, that stupidly led me to believe the film was dedicated to Princess Diana because <laughs> the film opens with For Diana, and I completely spaced and forgot that Diana Rigg was in it and thought, why is this film dedicated to Princess Diana? And then mm. I remembered that Diana Rigg was, in fact, in it. And she's great in it. Matt Smith was great in it. I don't feel like we had enough time to flesh out his character, but at the same time, I don't feel like we needed any more time to flesh out his character. It was always very simple. He was just kind of the bad guy. Um, it's full of twists and turns Um and I really enjoyed it. It's, I think it's Edgar Wright's most beautiful film. I think the cinematography is excellent. Um, and it's definitely the most visually appealing to look at. And also, the sound design is 
unbelievable. I don't know if you noticed this, but I was actively paying attention to it because I saw someone on Twitter tweeted, a cinema had put a sign up saying, the sound in Last Night in Soho sounds weird. This is intentional. And I was like, what does that mean? So I went to see it. And for the first 25 minutes before she goes back into the 60s in her dreams, the only speakers in the cinema that play sound are at the front. They don't use the surround sound, they don't right, use the speakers on the so wall. Right. And then as soon as she goes into the 60s and the song starts blaring, all of the speakers come to life. And right. it's one of the yeah, most immersive moments in the cinema I've had in a while. Yeah, because I, I didn't notice that, but I, I do remember it being quiet at the beginning. And even through the trailers, they're only using the front two yeah. speakers. Because I was like, oh, this is really quiet. I wonder why, like, I almost feel like I should go ask them to turn it up. Yeah. And then, well, that's what evidently a lot it, of people have done that because one cinema put a sign up saying it's intentional. So I was like listening for it and I was like, I'm paying attention to the sound so ooh. I can figure out why they had to put that sign up. Um, Don't you absolutely hate it when... And this is obviously intentional and it's, it's very... And it's great what they've done it and it makes sense. Don't you hate it when the cinema plays the films too quietly? Oh, yes. annoys There's me. one it's... screen in my local Odeon that's too quiet and it's June was When I saw June for the first time... Second time I was on IMAX, so it was a very different... The first time yeah. I saw June, I couldn't fucking understand what anyone was saying. There, were, there uh, is a lot uh, of whispering in June, isn't there? Yeah, and it's There's not great like, when you can't yeah, fucking hear it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, yeah this so, the moment when the song starts, when she finally goes into the 60s and the music, all the speakers start playing the music. One of the most immersive and amazing moments I've had in the cinema in a long time. It's a great song. It sounds great because it's the first time all the speakers are coming up and it looks great. The production design is exceptional. The costume design is exceptional. The cinematography is great. The direction is great. And I really enjoyed it. However, I do have a big issue with this. And it's the writing. I think this, to say that Edgar Wright, most famous probably for his comedy, this is, has some of the worst comedy in any film, not just in an Edgar Wright film, in any film I've ever seen. It has some of the most cheap and old jokes ever. I don't think it's a spoiler to say one of the jokes. One of the jokes is when Jocasta first meets Ellie, she says, where are you from? And Ellie goes, Cornwall. And Jocasta goes, sorry. And then Ellie goes, Cornwall. And she goes, oh no, I heard you. I'm just sorry. It's one yeah. of the most tired jokes ever. And I genuinely can't believe they put it in. A <laughs> I laughed at it the second time as well. I laughed at it in the cinema and I just laughed at it in the second time. So I disagree. <laughs> I think it is one of the most tired jokes ever. And I can't believe that it got put in a film, especially an Edgar Wright film. Someone who's actually I think that's funny. very funny. <laughs> I don't see the problem with that. I don't think it's funny. I don't think, it's I, a it's funny just line. one of the most old jokes ever. And I just think Edgar Wright's better than that. And it really disappointed me. And there are a few other moments as well. I can't remember any off the top of my head. But there are a few mm. other moments where there are literally script. It's not things that happen or it's a joke within the film. It's as if someone tells a joke as though they're doing a stand-up set within the film. And it just really doesn't work for me. And it felt If really you don't nice. like that... I know, you, I know you don't like horror, but I want to produce. Uh, I want to edit a cut of the film Spiral, but with I'm just going to cut all the gore out, just like put a big black box over all the yeah. gore, and just make you sit through that because that that is really really like that is insane. Like, I don't. I know. I've, 
Ooh, I hit the mic. I, I um, sorry, I'm not going to edit that out. Um, I apologize for punching the mic there. Uh, I've said it before. Another weird tangent, but I just remembered it. I've said it before in the podcast. In Spiral from the Book of Saw, Chris Rock literally stops mid scene and starts doing stand up midway through his <laughs> friends being murdered. He stops and does stand up. So carry on. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> that does make me intrigued to see Spiral. To be honest. But yeah, that's how it felt with this. And I feel like with Spiral, I don't know who directed Spiral, but I think Chris Rock co-wrote it, didn't he? Yeah, he, he script edited, he added bits. Yeah. So I don't think, I if I if I did ever watch Spiral, which I won't, I wouldn't go into Unlucky. it expecting like actual interesting and good comedy. Whereas if this is Edgar Wright, who, as I've said, I think he's one of the most funny directors out there. His visual comedy is brilliant. And in this, the comedy just felt cheap. It, you know, that what that one joke in particular, and there there is another specific one that I can't remember off the top of my head, where I just thought that's literally like the kind of joke that you'd read in a joke book when you're six, and you'd tell your mum and dad, and they'd pretend to laugh at it as though it were the first time they've heard it. And the fact that Edgar Wright did it, it just kind of felt wrong and i was like this is cheap you're, you're better than this i thought it, it did have some of the worst writing in any edgar wright film i've seen um and also i think a lot of people have been complaining about this but the third act it is a bit messy and a bit kind of um mm. it's difficult to talk about without getting into spoilers because the third act particularly is so twisty and plot twisty sure um but yeah there are a few moments where i thought this is a bit like I've got a few issues with this. This isn't as good as it could have been or as good as it should have been. Um, but overall, I did very much enjoy it. The music is fantastic. I think the you know all three films we've spoken about use music excellently. And this one, particularly for me, every five minutes, another needle drop happened and it was another absolute banger that matched everything that we were seeing on the screen. And it was gorgeous and immersive and I did love this, and I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought, but I do think this has one of the weakest scripts of an Edgar Wright film, and one of the weakest scripts I've seen this year, unfortunately. But despite that, I did very much enjoy it, because the visuals are so good, and the story does have so much potential, and unlike Baby Driver, I do feel connected to Eloise or Ellie, I do feel connected to the characters, um, So and Sandy as well, I do feel connected to Sandy, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, and it's just it's it's the third act felt a little bit messy a little bit imperfect and the comedy just wasn't there and i know it's a this is a more serious film the subject matter in particular is a lot more serious um but there there are jokes in it and if you're going to put jokes in it they should be good jokes and we know that edgar wright can do good jokes because he's amazing at doing comedy especially visual comedy and that just seems completely absent here. And a lot of the times, his direction felt a lot less Edgar Wright as well. Like, a few scenes I was watching it, I was thinking, there are a lot of people I can imagine who have directed this. Whereas when I watch Baby Driver or Scott Pilgrim or Hot Fuzz or any of his others, I think this is very evidently Edgar Wright. Whereas there were a lot of times in this where I thought, this could be a lot of directors it doesn't quite have his fingerprint on it, his footprint on it, to say this is very Edgar Wright. This feels like Edgar Wright at his least Edgar Wright. 
which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's also not a good thing for me, who wanted more of that, who is such a fan of his style. Um, there is a lot missing from this for me, from what I expected, but I still did very much enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So have I got the floor for a sec? Yeah, take it away. It sounded really condescending. Like, yeah, can I speak now? I know, can I yeah. fucking speak? <laughs> uh, okay, just wanted to know if you didn't know anything. As I say. Okay. You may now speak. You have my permission to speak. <laughs> I have the proverbial floor. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so, I've got a lot to say. And I don't know what to say. So, I had this insane sense of expectation about Last Night Soho. And I wouldn't say expectation, actually. I'd say anticipation, excitement, hype. Um, and I don't think that, despite what I said earlier, I don't think that's necessarily been an issue for me to be still be, um, you know, properly, you know, objective about these things. I don't, I, I, it didn't affect how much I like the Friends Dispatch or, or June. So, but going into this, I, I was very excited by the trailers. Um, the, 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 the soundtrack, the vibe, uh, the, the acting, the act, the, the, you know, Thomas and McKenzie and Andy Taylor Joy, of course, like just them being in it. Um, I was very excited by the, 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 the setting, of course, both in the, the sixties London and, and the modern London. Um, and I got everything I wanted in some ways, but I got nothing that I wanted in other ways. My opinions on Last and Soto are confused and mixed and I think very positive, but I think, um, so there are so many great things about last night. So this is beautiful, wonderful, dazzling, sparkling, wonderful adaptation, uh, a representation of the sixties. London is warm. And especially the, the first two times, the when when she first goes down the more positive times when she goes back um it's it's wonderful the the world they've created is so you know it feels there's a line in the film that that you know she says to her, her landlady like oh uh, you know in the 60s um london must have felt like the center of the world and i think the way that london is shown and 60s london is portrayed you feel like you're in the center of the world and the, the lights and the glamour it's stunning the, the 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 costume design is beautiful which of course is important a film that is in a way about fashion and you know it's it's it blows your mind and i wish we had a bit more of that there is i feel like there especially there is the the early scenes of of 60s london give you so much and you want so much more and i don't necessarily think you always get that but of course it goes with the plot but the thing that 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 is the strongest part of this film, and I think you'd agree, is is the the sixties sections, oh, you know, yeah. the, the six the the performance of Annie Taylor Joy. And I think the the wonderful visuals and the wonderful way they get around the problem of making you realise that this isn't a complete random dream. That Thomas and Mackenzie is not a spectator, but she is a participant. You know, there's these wonderful mm. scenes of Annie Taylor-Joy walking down staircases, but then yeah. across each step, you see Thomas and Mackenzie observing her in her pajamas through the mirrors. You know, mm. you see scenes where, where you know, it starts off with Matt Smith's, you know, the love interest of, of Annie Taylor-Joy starts talking to Thomas and Mackenzie. Then the camera turns around and it's Annie Taylor-Joy. The way that's shown 
exceptional acting, exceptional directing. Um, it, it just it creates this wonderful effect of, you know, it, it, it's if you you are, are it, you're kind of in there as well. You know, it feels like the way that she's transported, the way that she's kind of there, she's like translucent. You almost feel like you can step into her shoes. You're almost feeling like what you're experiencing itself is a vision. And what you say about sound design, you know, I, I was unaware of it at the time, but now that is genius. But I also think that this film has some major issues. Firstly, the horror for me isn't always there. Now, I feel like this sounds, again, condescending because you were scared, but yeah. I don't really, no, no I, offense. I, get it, Dory. <laughs> I don't think it, it means much. I think that this horror yeah, feels a little bit. means literally nothing. <laughs> yeah. You can tell that, in a way, that you can tell it's egg right because you can tell that he's used to doing horror, but horror light, because, you know, that the zombies, the, the, the the zombies in the world's end, or like the alien zombies in the world's end, or the actual zombies in Silence of Land, uh, Silence of Land, Shaun of the Dead, are, <laughs> are, are far closer to the, the horror that we see here than the horror we see here would be to a, you know, the ring or, or something. You know, the, the horror does always feel a little bit like a child's expectation of what scariness is. I, I never feel like you fully go all in and that's fine. That's fine. If you don't want to do horror to the max, if you just want to have a, a, a spooky story, do that. But it felt like it was always attempting to be necessarily more, more scary than it was. It, it thought that it, it was taking itself too seriously. I think as I say, the horror I'll describe, um, but the major problem, I mean, I, I feel like I'm being, I'm going straight to the negatives here and I'm not talking about how good Thomas and McKenzie was, how good the production design was. Um, how good Matt Smith was. Um, and, and kind of when I mentioned to my family and my close friends that Matt Smith is in something, they kind of always laugh. I'm like, oh, last night I said that Matt Smith's in it. They would laugh because of my very public disdain of Matt Smith as the 11th Doctor in Doctor Who. I am not a fan. I am, I, I can't stand his fucking face. But it turns out that when he's out of his Doctor Who costume, when he's out of the TARDIS, I don't mind his face or his personality at all. I think Matt Smith's a great actor. I just really don't like his annoying face and his annoying bow tie <laughs> when he's doing Doctor Who. So I have no problem. I thought Matt Smith was great. And I wish we'd seen him more. But the problem with this film is that it has these twists and turns and it has big plot decisions I don't exactly know why, but it all just feels really hollow. It feels unbelievably surface level. Quite, maybe say midway through the second act, it seems like it has gone from an interesting, sometimes scary, sometimes captivating, sometimes, as I said before, dazzling story that you really get involved with, that you really feel that you're part of. It goes from that to just a kind of series of events. It never feels like this is where you think the story is going to go in, not in like a, a surprising way, but it always kind of feels like, oh, they've gone there. And a lot of the events that happen later on feel silly, uh, out of touch, out unrealistic, um, tonally wrong. And I feel like whilst I want to love this for what it, started off as and what it should have been i am forced to deal with what it actually was which is hollow 
it didn't give me the emotional response, the emotional effect that I, I thought it was trying to give me. It didn't give me any sense of love for any of the characters. I didn't feel any remorse for some of the negative things that happened on. Like, I feel like it all feels awfully surface level. And I think that, that maybe you're onto something with the script being there. That this does just turn into a series of events. And maybe the fact that you get so attached in a certain way to characters that when they're flipped on their head, it doesn't feel right. Maybe it's because relationships aren't necessarily built up, both positively and negatively. Maybe it's because we aren't given enough time with characters to really understand their motives. But for me, whilst I appreciate the performances, whilst I think this looks beautiful, and whilst I ultimately will give this a very high score because of just how much I love the elements I loved, I just felt hollow, you know? I just felt it lacked some sort of intelligence or emotion to it. I don't, do, do you understand where I'm coming from? Yeah, I definitely understand where you're coming from. And it's really difficult to go into detail without going into spoilers, because obviously this is a very spoiler-heavy film. Um, but yeah, I do understand what you're saying. It does feel like it wants to have something to say, but it it doesn't particularly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like we were talking about, um, or oh, I, I mentioned briefly about style over substance, this is kind of, and I said, you know, what's wrong with having stylized fun? This is stylized, but it's not particularly fun towards the end. It's just, it looks like it, it's hyper-stylized, and it wants to have something to say, but it doesn't, and it becomes style over substance in a bad way, rather than style over substance in a fun way. Um, But yeah, I do, obviously, me saying that I found it scary means literally nothing. I found the I, I, the don't, I don't like to pile on you. <laughs> yeah, sorry for, for, for highlighting that. No, it's fine. I'm fully aware of it. I felt like I just said, I found the trailer for Scream that played before it scary. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, the trailers are scary. The film's going to be another level. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I do think the second trailer gave too much away. I agree. By yeah, the way. Because the first trailer just presents it as, oh, she goes back into the 60s when she dreams and, you know, she meets this person in her dreams. Maybe this person's real. The second trailer laid out the plot. And as much mm-hmm. as it didn't lay out the plot enough because it is full of twists and turns, it you did like, okay, that's what it's about. And I also, I did find it quite predictable as well. Um, I thought, Some elements I agree. Some elements yeah, I don't agree. There's, there's, there's two things in particular that I didn't predict. But I predicted kind of the main big twist, and I guess um, very big twist. Rather than kind of um, tiptoeing around it, when we go do spoilers, if do you want to do spoilers for this, yeah, we can do. It. If it you want to do spoilers, this, we'll, film, so we'll yeah, do we that in a second. All oh, right, then. Yeah. yeah, we'll wait then. Um, I, I've got something to say um, about London. So, oh, before you this... say that, can I say one last thing about? Um... Sure. The, uh, unless what you're saying is about last night in Soho. It is about last night in Soho. All right, you can go there. I thought you were moving on. <laughs> no, no. All right, yeah, go on then. Sorry. Um, so, I, I'm a Londoner. I live in London. I'm from London. I love London. And I've been to an awful lot of places in the world, and I think that London is the best city on the planet. Uh, and I love London media. And last night in Soho is that. Is that. And... It 
kind of does uh, some mysticism. It, it shows the wonderful big city that she comes to. And I think it is completely valid that she talks about the fear of coming to the big city for the first time. Um, the worries of going from Cornwall's life to, 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 to London. And, and that, that's immediately followed by a kind of this, you know, this, this, you know, you, you experience that 60s London whilst you're also experiencing the highs of Thomas McKenzie's life in modern London. And at that point, it is what I'd say, oh, it's a beautiful love letter to, to the city. And it's wonderful. And especially that 60s stuff, it really made me think, oh, because I love Soho as well. Soho's cracking. I'd love Soho. And just even in every single scene in real life, I was like, oh, I know where that road is. Oh, I know there. I was down there the other way. Oh, look, I was there. Oh, this that's around the corner from the cinema. Like I kept thinking that the whole way through the film. Um, And and the 60s stuff is great. And it, it really is nice to like, it's, it's, it's almost like, you know, when you go to the BFI and there's like the, the room in the, I don't think you've probably never been, but there's a kind of library room at the BFI where it's got all these, like, you can just watch all these old, like, films on these little monitors. And there's loads of, like, documentaries, like London in the 40s and London in the 20s and stuff. And it's, like, kind of like that. It's like, oh, I've got some time in London. But fuck me, do they go on about how they don't like London? They don't shut up about how bad it is. Like, it's the <laughs> worst place in the world. I've never seen someone get pickpocketed ever. I've never heard, like, it's, it's, I mean, I know that's like mad, but in central London, like, it's not like it's run, overrun and it does obviously happen, but it's not like a, a reputation for it. You're not constantly getting pickpocketed. Not not all, oh, I don't remember that happening. They always talk about all oh, these dodgy people and they're going to steal your stuff and they're oh, going to yeah. kill you and they're going to, you're going to go missing and, oh, you've got to be worried. Oh, you've got to, you got to be streetwise. They don't know how to shut up at how bad London is. If you're going to do that, don't make a film romanticizing London so much. It was, I know it's a little thing, but it did get on my nerves a bit. And it's not like Edgar Wright is from London. He's from fucking Bournemouth. But like, God, cheer up, lads. Fucking hell. It's not like, and it, it it did get under my skin a little bit. And that's what I was like, fucking shut up. But. Well, I think, when talk- obviously I'm not from London. So I don't have the no. same attachment to London as you do. And nor do I have the same sensitivity about it either. But um, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's, I think it's different because she is, you know, you've, you live in London and you have done, presumably. But I grew up out of London. So yeah. I came back for university like she did. Yeah, but she has always lived in Cornwall, which is the countryside. And also, I think it is different. I don't obviously. I, I don't want to get into. Yeah, but the thing is, even not... the people from London insult London loads. Even like her landlady and like the people in the pub moan about London loads. But I think, I'm like, cheer up, lads. I can understand why the landlady would moan about it, and I also because I think it's different for women. I think it's different for young women living in a massive city, going from living in the countryside in Cornwall to living in a massive city, I think it's different for women. But it's the thing is that this is a po- like this shows itself as this like love letter. It, it just it was just annoyed me. It's just a little thing. Yeah. But there is one really, really, really like there is no excuse, really angry London moment here. Now I was talking to this to my parents. Uh, I talked to both my parents individually on the phone. I mentioned this and they were both fuming. There is a crime against Londoners here. One of her, so the main character, Thomas McKenzie, has a kind of a love interest, right? He, he's called uh, John, right? Yeah. Michael Zhao. He says, oh, you know, it's weird for me coming up to North London too. She goes, where are you from? He goes, I'm from South London. And that's the joke, right? Yeah, which is another example of jokes. bad joke. He talks about driving up to North London, difference in North London. 
What are you on about? Soho is not North London. Why do they keep saying that? It it's it sounds like a small thing, but it's so annoying because no one from London, even if you're from the most south of the south, you will not think that Ca- uh, that Soho is North London. North London starts at Camden. This is central, or if you uh, maybe you know the West End, the, the West. This is not North London. It's north of the river. It is not North London. Ah, oh, uh. okay. I can understand that for as well. I don't understand it, but I can. I evidently. Who script edited? How did no one know that? How did it get through? How did the editor and the actor and all of the writers? None of them checked that out. <sighs> Didn't Edgar Wright grow up in London, though? If he did, it London. better have not been fucking Soho, because otherwise <laughs> he must get lost every time he gets in the tube. No one can convince me that that is North London. Have you? Ah. He was born in Dorset, which is, which is, I assume, why um, it's kind of a parallel between he and Eloise, because she's from Cornwall in the film. Yeah. Oh, no, he grew up in Somerset. Yeah. He grew, so, that's, yeah that's, that's what Hot Fuzz is about. So, next time you write a film about Lorden, can you at least go on Google Maps or Google it or ask someone? North of the River is not North London. Well, some, well North London is North of the River, but... North River isn't North London. So, sounds like a small thing, but a bit like, you know, Cruella, that was a nicer love story for London. That was a, that, that loved London a lot. That was an, even though they had the awful accent. This is a bit like the Paul Waterhouse's accent moment for me. Like, yeah. But, when I do, you, I do, I do accept that one. I do accept when that. You, uh, when you're talking about love letters to London, Cruella is, is the bigger love letter here because it, it doesn't have any of the negative bits, but um, I appreciate it. The, the thing is, is that, you know, as in, I, I love London media and I still really, really love the fact that I got transported back to 60s London for a bit. But it also did annoy me that after all the moaning about it, they also ended the film that the end credits were in like twined with I did really shots of, of of modern Soho, which looked great. Unfortunately, I did need a piss really bad. So I had to miss off <laughs> after like, the first two two of them. I found, that I, really like, is, I found that really nice as well because they were all yeah, me too. during the pandemic. Which I think makes it as well a little bit of a time capsule as well. Yeah, I really liked it, which was yeah. a really nice touch. But then also they paired that with Moaning About London for the last hour and a half before that. So I felt like, mm, do you really have the right now to do that? But it did look really cool. And it was a really cool, nice touch. But yeah. yeah, that's the end of my rant about London. You got other I, thoughts I, about I the film? I understand the bit about North London and Soho, but I have to say, I do disagree with the whole London is a Yeah, I just think they're a bit OTT, that's all. That, it's just they're a little bit harsh on it. Yeah. Fair enough. You had another thought. I Before did. we no, got as well as you said, you had another thought. Okay, <laughs> should we go into spoilers? <laughs> Pardon? Should we go into spoilers? Yeah, go into spoilers. Maybe it'll come back to me. So, well, I'll ask you the same question. Do you have any? Th- okay, so there's a spoiler warning here. If you haven't seen Last Night in Soho and you don't want to get spoilers for it, um, do not listen to this bit. Um, and I'll give you a spoiler warning in the description for when you can skip through and we'll give our ratings and our man of the match and we'll go on to talking about a few other little things i want to mention before we go uh, including ben affleck and jared leto um so before we get onto that um do you have any spoilery thoughts about yes. last night so so what is your your issues with the well, I, well i'll, I'll start off with what i thought was predictable i thought that 
they were very obviously trying to make it out that Matt Smith was Terrence Stamp. That was very obvious. The, the trailers, guy, yeah. the editing, that's obviously what they wanted us to think. And it worked. From the trailers for the first, like, hour or so, that's what I thought. And then I was like, this is definitely a red herring. He's not Matt Smith. Yeah. And then I figured out quite soon after that that, um, what's his name? Matt Smith's character? Jack. Uh, Jack. Uh, very quickly after that, I figured out that Jack didn't kill Sandy. Sandy killed Jack. And that's kind of the big twist. So that didn't work for me because I found it quite predictable. But I didn't predict that she killed all of them. That came out of the blue for me. And I also thought it was very obvious that the landlady was Sandy because she only ever referred to her by a second name. And Sandy never got a second name in the past. So I figured that out on that out very early on. So I found those very predictable, which I think is um, a testament to what I was saying earlier about the script being quite weak. You know, the, the two big twists that Sandy was the landlady and that Sandy killed Jack, not the other way around. Those I kind of predicted very early on. But her being a serial killer, that came out of nowhere for me. That came out of the blue and that did shock me. And I loved that. That was a great twist. I did have some issues because I feel like for a moment when all of the, are they ghosts or visions or whatever you describe them as, um, they're just the men that Sandy's killed. Mm. And at the very end, I mean, when she's in the room, when Eloise is in the room and they all coming over to her and they're going, help us, help us. And that's when she realizes, and that's when we realize as well, or this is my issue with it, is that they're the victims and it's like, is the film trying to get us to feel sorry for these rapists? These people that took advantage of young women. Is the film trying to get us to feel sorry for them? And then San- and then Ellie said, no. Mm, I, I mean, to be fair, you. I just want to say, I don't, but the, to be fair, it shows Matt Smith to be more of a pimp. So I don't know if I would describe them as rapists. Well, I think coercion is not consent. And she was definitely coerced into it. She didn't want to do it. But then is she, does she, we don't know if she appeared like that to them. Like if Matt Smith is forcing her to be a prostitute, like she could be. I still think. I yeah, they're not, they're, not, they're showing, they're, the film obviously intends them to be creepy and dirty, I guess. Yeah. So I, I guess would, that, that personally, is. Personally, the way that it was presented, I interpreted them. As, yeah. You know, she didn't yeah. want to do it. She was being forced to do it. Even though she said, yes, you can have sex with me. That doesn't mean that as much as yes is consent in inverted commas she was coerced into doing it so that kind of made me feel a bit yeah uh, yeah i was just saying oh should we put the blame more on matt smith but yeah well yeah I but yeah actually to true. be fair it's kind of yeah like the way that if if that was the way that they if they wanted to say it like that then they wouldn't have made them out to be like creepy old men so yeah, yeah. i get yeah they are um and that, really, when yeah. when they were saying help us help us I was like, are they trying to get us to feel sorry for these men but the thi- that took advantage I, I, I of did- young women? Like, as much as, you know, like I, like we've just discussed briefly, in my head, the way I interpreted it, they were rapists. As much as they weren't kind of overt, force themselves on someone who was trying to kick them off. Rapists. Yeah, but, 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 she, uh, Thomas McKenzie doesn't feel bad for them. She makes it very clear yeah, that she getting. sympathizes with Diana Rigg. She's like, she doesn't oh, see yeah. these victims. That's what I'm getting to, yeah. And that's why, that's when I thought the film was going. I thought that they were going to make it like, oh God, they've made this into, you know, oh, you, now you feel sorry for the men because 
she's, you know, Sandy's killed them all. Sandy's the real villain. And I thought, oh, please don't do that. Because the way it was setting it up as well with the scene prior to it, it felt like Ellie was going to, like, lash out and kill Sandy. And it was going to be, you're all free now, victims. And thankfully, like you said, that's not the way it goes. She says no, you know, and she has the relatively emotional moment with older Sandy and younger Sandy as well. They have a scene that's basically the same um, where she says, like, you, you know, you don't have to do this because Sandy's going to kill herself in the fire. And I did enjoy that, but I did just feel as though it, it wasn't handled as sensitively as such a sensitive topic needs to be. I don't think that it was carried out as well. I just think it was it was very kind of morally obscure and not in a good way for me. It kind of made me think, what does this film think? Is this film saying, you know, it just kind of, it did get lost on me and I was kind of thinking, I'm not a massive fan of the direction they've taken this. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the issue I had with the third act. It also felt, you know, very kind of typical as well. But as soon as the twist came that she was a serial killer, she hadn't just killed one Jack, she'd killed them all. It came became just a very kind of generic, oh, the killer, we need to get away from the killer, escape the killer. And also I found it, again, this is another thing of my issue with the script. When she said, when Diana Riggs said, drink your tea, I looked at the person I was sat next to and we both looked at each other and went, that's poison. Because it would just made it so obvious and I think that I expect so much better from Edgar Wright in terms of the writing. You know, it, it, it just didn't capture what I wanted it to capture. And I think it, it it just wasn't good enough, as good as it needed to be to handle a topic like this. Because all of his other films, they're not heavy topics. They're not kind of socially relevant. You know, zombie films, uh, two police officers dealing with a cult. And, and all that stuff that goes on in Scott Pilgrim and then Baby Driver and then this, this is the first one that has a serious subject matter and I just don't think it was as good as it needed to be I don't think it was handled, handled as well as it needed to be I, I I saw through well, I don't know, I, I think similar to you, I thought that Matt Smith was, was Terrence Stamp um, until, until you know, that's just, just reminded I me of what I wanted to say sorry it's only very brief. I've very never realised how much Terran Stamp looks like Max Smith until this. They do look very similar, don't you think? Mm, not really. I think the nose, the head shape, they're very similar, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, sorry to interrupt you, carry on. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I, I didn't, I thought it was him until relatively late on and then five minutes before I knew, before we realised it wasn't, I realised that it wasn't. Um, and then I, I didn't get the, the Anastasia Joy, oh, sorry, uh, Sandy actually killed Jack. I didn't think that because I, I, I misremembered from two minutes before. I thought that we, I, for some reason, I thought we'd seen her dead. Like, I thought it was obvious that she died. Obviously, it wasn't obvious that she died. It was just obviously she was covered in blood. But, so I didn't make that connection. And also, I didn't realize that. Diana Rigg was Sandy. That that didn't I didn't make that connection until I saw uh, like Alexandra or whatever it was written on mm. the the letter the first time. I was like, wait a second, and then obviously they announce it like a minute, half a minute later. Yeah. So I I didn't make those connections. So 
yeah, I guess I, I fell for the, the twists. Uh, and I was quite intrigued by the twist. And I think that they made it better. Like when I, when I, when I, when Diana Rigg turned out to be Sandy in Things to Kill Him, I kind of like, like, ah, oh, oh, okay. Like, like, oh, I can kind of get on board with that. Like, kind of like, I felt like, okay, this, I wasn't vibing necessarily with exactly how the story was playing out. And then that happened and it like put it back on track to a degree. But then I don't necessarily know if they did it. What from that point on? That's one of the stuff that made me feel the most hollow. It didn't go into the nuance of it. It didn't do anything imaginative. imaginative. Um, I think it kind of betrays her character for her just to suddenly turn into like kind of an evil thing. But it kind of removes the soul from her, which is partly what I think makes it feel hollow. And then the whole like her sitting upstairs on fire. I don't know. It just the whole point was that I didn't really feel like it had much of a purpose. And after like the big twist, it did just seem like a series of events happening. And again, I just don't think that's necessarily going along with the sandy that that we've been shown she, she before she kills out of necessity she kills out of fear she kills not necessarily out of uh, of enjoyment or spite it's because for her you know out of revenge or anything like for her to suddenly turn on Thomas McKenzie even with the justification of the, of the of the script it just felt like kind of betraying the character that we'd loved Again, I just wasn't particularly a massive fan of the way that it ended up. It did just seem like a series of things. I never, ever really bought into the John um, uh, Eloise romance as well. I don't think we got enough evidence of why they got on. It just kind of seemed like she kept being... To be fair, I feel like I... You know, that, that uh, Jocasta, like her mate that was like an absolute arsehole, who was one of my favourite performances of the film, by the way. I didn't, I didn't mention that. But if I was one of like Jocasta's mates, if I was one of like the bitchy girls at the school, I would also think that that um, Eloise, Thomas McKenzie's character, was a freak. Like, I don't know, like, we are showing no reason yeah. why John, like, falls in love with her because, like, it's just like, he, everyone, he, she acts weird. Everyone calls out for it except for John. She then acts weird again. Everyone calls her out for it except for John. It's yeah. like, well, there's no justification for she, why they She get literally tries to stab Jocasta in the face with a pair of scissors, which as much as... Yeah. You know, she doesn't know what she's doing at that moment. That's what everyone sees. Yeah. Obviously, you would think she's a bit crazy, but for some reason, and again, I think I keep going back to it. I think it's just an issue with the script. I don't buy into their romance as much. I still care. I don't. I don't hate the script. I don't think it's as bad as, as you say it is. But one of the worst moments that I thought was when the entire so. Um, all of this batshit stuff. Thomas and Mackenzie comes out. I'm seeing visions. I'm seeing ghosts. I see my dead mum. All this stuff happens. Um, I think that Sandy was killed in the 60s by a thing. And then John goes, oh yeah, my auntie believes in ghosts. And then that's (laughs) it. That's fine. Sure. Like, like, so what? Your auntie? Like, it was such a strange, like, yeah, my aunt believes in ghosts. But that yeah, justifies it, does it? I know what you mean. Like, there are so many things in this film where I just think, why was this not addressed? Like, why is this not a thing? Like, the whole plot twist about the Terran stamp not being Matt Smith, that's a big kind of plot line for a while. She is, you know, walking around accusing this man of murder. And she never stops and says, what's that guy's name? And it's like, yeah, you know this man's name. You're what? Why didn't you ask anyone his name? And then it comes to one of the worst moments in the entire film for me, in terms of it's meant to be an emotional moment, but it found it laughable, not intentionally, was when Terran Stamp got hit by a car, 
and I can't remember the, his character's name, but he the the bar owner Lindsay, of the bar, I think. Pardon? Was it Lindsay? Yeah, yeah, I think it was that. You know, they go, oh my god, Lindsay, Lindsay's been hit by a car. And Eloise goes, he's not called Jack? And I think, can you imagine if you were that bartender? Someone you've known for years has just been hit by a car, and someone comes over and goes, is that not Jack? Like, where have you got Jack from? What, what are you on about? No, of course it's not Jack. And it was like... To be fair, that is pretty much what she says. She goes, what are you on about? She's called Lindsay. He's called Lindsay. Yeah, but I just think that's meant to be, you know, Eloise's big, like, oh my god, he's not Jack. I've been all wrong about this. And I'm like, did you never think to say, what's yeah. that guy's name? Yeah, that is true. I know you talk about me nitpicking. I do feel like uh, I'm nitpicking at this point. No, 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 I don't. I don't. I don't all agree. Right. I, I think the thing you talk about me nitpicking when I was doing the idea and Hanson and you know like me talking about Camden. Uh, I keep saying Camden. Talk about Soho not being in North London. No, I agree with um, the North London thing. One of the other ones that like you call it not nitpicking, but like it plot holes and stupid things. It does take you out of the immersion a bit. Like yeah. um, one of the ones that it's such a small thing, but I'm like, that's not how student loans work. Like, how the fuck did she just leave her accommodation and like just suddenly walk straight <laughs> into, like, she's just got a bedsit that she's paying for yeah. that she that has two months. Like, one of the few jokes that I did find funny in this is when it's the quick match cut when she says to Diana Rigg, "I would never just pack up and leave in the middle of the night," and it's an instant smash cut of her packing up and leaving in the middle of the night. Yeah, that was funny. That was great. But that's also not how student housing works, and how you can and like. I know, yeah. You can't, you can't, you can't just cancel student housing housing like two weeks in. Like, yeah. That's not really how it works. And I it's also like think going, going back to you still have to pay first. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Actually, that does take you out. You in hindsight, yeah. that has taken me out of it even more. But yeah, like in terms of nitpicking, I also think it depends on how seriously the film takes itself. And like you said, I think this takes itself a bit too seriously. So things like that do stand out. Like when I was watching Evan Hansen, I wasn't taking it seriously. I didn't feel like the film was taking it seriously, so I didn't really care about any of the nitpicking stuff. Whereas with this, like you said, I do think it was taking the horror, I do think it was taking itself very seriously. So then I did find myself questioning, like, well, why didn't you just ask for his name? Then you would have found out that it was Lindsay. You would have found out that it was a police officer, not a pimp. And you could have avoided this whole thing. Like it just makes me think things like that. Why didn't? Why did she never ask his name? That thing really bugged me. Yeah, yeah. But okay. I, but I, we've spoken about so many negatives. This is still really fun, and it's a great film, especially the first hour. The first hour of this is yeah absolutely magnificent. Yeah, it feels like we're going to give it a far more negative review than uh, like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, have you got have, have you got any small spoilery stuff, stuff to say? I don't think so, no. I, okay, Although, I'm going to do something. one tiny spoiler thing left to say, and this isn't okay. really a spoiler, but it is, so I'll mention it now, is at the end she has a fashion show, obviously, and the, the clothes that she's been designing throughout are obviously inspired by the outfits that she sees Anya Taylor-Joy wearing, and then she changes them for her final fashion show, and the the pink dress that becomes really the iconic sandy dress throughout the film, she adds this weird vinyl silver collar, and it looks disgusting. It's awful. It's so ugly. It looked so much better the first time. Why did she add that silver collar? That, again, I'm not a fashion student, but it didn't look good. Right. 
that's I mean, a very I, important I part opinion. of the film. Yeah, I don't have an opinion. To be honest, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I don't. I. I'm the really, I've I've juggled this film in my ratings like my ranking so much like at one point I had like seventh of the year and then I had like twenty ninth and then now I've had like twenty second like I keep juggling around like I don't know what I think about this film um and it's the most I've ever been confused by a film this year like, I just don't know what I think of it okay I'm gonna do some, something I, I've never done before which is leave a spoiler section and then carry on talking about the film because I just before we finish up I just want to quickly um talk about the performances again. Now, um, for me, as I said, I don't really think I talked about how much I think that, uh, I don't know how it's pronounced, Sinovi, Sinovi, I don't know, Sinovi Carlson, I don't know how it's pronounced, um, but who plays Jocasta, who's kind of like the kind of the bully character. I think that she's absolutely excellent and really, 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 I, like no one's talked about her because she's quite a minor character, but I thought that despite, that's why I go went and watched her short film earlier. Even though she's in, she, she isn't, doesn't like have the importance in the plot that a, a lot of other characters do. I thought that she was absolutely wonderful uh, as her character. I thought she was, she was standout. But I just want to talk about, um, if we have to do this, which we don't, but I'm making us. Anna Taylor Joy and Thomas McKenzie both put in like top, top, top notch performances in very different roles and play very different women. Which one was better? Oh, oh, that is difficult. Right. I oh, I think Anya Taylor Joy gives kind of a more enjoyable performance for a, a lot of it because she's a lot of her performances, you know, dancing, singing, having fun in the sixties. But Thomas and Mackenzie has so much more to do that I I would feel wrong picking not picking Thomas and Mackenzie because she has so yeah. much more to do and she's on the periphery of those scenes as well. And she kind of blends in with those scenes. Like we haven't even spoken about the, well, in fact, no, you did, you mentioned it, the fact that we kind of see her on the other side. Yeah. Of yeah. These yeah. 60s visions and particularly the dance scene, which has got about 50 Texas switches in it. And, you know, one second it's Anya Taylor joy. Then she spins, goes out of frame for a split second and it's back and she's Thomas McKenzie and then back to Anya Taylor joy. It's and that scene is so good. And it's so brilliant. And I think Thomas and Mackenzie, I'd have to say her. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Um, I don't you? know where I'd go. I think I'd probably go for Annie Taylor-Joy because I think the way that she captures those 60s scenes, she just, just glides from scene to scene. I think that like she's got a very um, expressive character in a different way. She's very, yeah. you know, she, especially when she's, you know, at the height of her spirits, she's kind of trying to, really be this person that she isn't yet and um i think the way that she kind of exudes this sexiness and like like otherworldliness and like you know she's she's trying to be like you know she's already acting like she's already made it and she's already this sex symbol even though she's just like some random bird from wherever like she's not famous or anything um that, that that like the way that she carries that across and the way that she carries herself and obviously doing all the dancing and singing stuff, I thought she was excellent. Uh, so even they're both both great. Um, but I think I could tell to enjoy. And also, just a second, to talk about how good the music is in this. You talk oh, about yeah. the sound, but the music is just wonderful. Um, uh, and obviously, as I said, it's very obvious how much uh, Edgar Wright is into his music. All those films have elements of music involved. Even Shaun of the Dead has that scene with um, White Lines or whatever. Um, yeah, it's uh, music is wonderful, and and Taylor Joy's uh, rendition of Downtown is a fucking banger. Okay, what would we be thinking about giving a rating to this? Oh, this is so difficult. This is so difficult 
I when I came out of the cinema, I loved it, and I was completely like head over heels in love with it. I do think that was a bit of like recency bias because I'd just kind of been swept off my feet by it. The more that it's mellowed with me, and the more that we've been speaking about it, the less positively I feel. But I'm rewatching it tomorrow, so maybe it'll go back up. But for now, I'm really thinking like a seven out of ten. Yeah, I think I'm gonna give it a. Seven, seven and a half, maybe. Yeah. Maybe that's, if I'm feeling that's... particularly negative, it could drop down to a 6.5, but I'm going to stick with a seven. Yeah, seven sounds about right for me. Uh, I'll re- I might rewatch it as well and see what I think, because there, I love... It's the, the bits I like, I love, and the bits I dislike, I hate, and, and that's the yeah. thing. And, and, when, and also... Or maybe, that... the, maybe the problem is the things I dis... The problem is things I dislike, I feel completely... Um, disillusioned with. It's not that I hate them, I just feel like, meh, and that's the problem. Yeah. I agree. We can say something. And also, the, we... there's the sequence talking about, going quickly switching back to talk about Annie Taylor-Joy's performance. That sequence, it's kind of like a montage of her sat in the bar in the booth, and you know, you get like 15 different men talking to her. Yeah, that's excellent. Different that is excellent. Every time, it's... it's yeah, that's a heartbreaking scene to watch, and Anya Taylor Joy is oh, flawless. Yeah, in that, that, scene. Is a, that is and, an excellent scene. And, and the, the editing for because she's on the other side of the on, on the other side yeah. of the glass. She's reacting yeah. to it, and it's just that scene is oh, it's perfect. Mm-hmm. The editing throughout this is excellent. Yes. Um, okay, so man of the match. I I know who my man of the match is straight away. I am a little mm-hmm. bit confused because there is two spellings of his name. One is on Wikipedia, the other is on Letterboxd, uh, but it's the cinematographer, and his name, according to Wikipedia, is Chung Chung Hoon. His name, according to Letterboxd, is Jung Jung Hoon. Um, so, whichever one of those is the correct pronunciation, him, the cinematographer, because I think the visuals of this film are out of this world. Okay, um... For me, uh, I don't really have to give my reasons because I just did. Uh, I'm going to give it to Anna Taylor. Am I? Am I? Am I? <laughs> no. I'm going to give no. it to. No, I'm going to give it to. I'm going to. Give, I'm giving it to Marcus Rowland for the production design. Yeah. I think the this yeah this looks beautiful. I love being in the sixties. I love you know what yeah. you know the the good bits about London were great. Um, yeah, I'm giving it to Marcus Rowland for the production design. It's just uh, it, the the just the world the world that was built here just looks wonderful. So yeah, yeah. I almost went with production design as well. Um, right. I almost feel like this is this is a long podcast. Um, I wanted to quickly talk about. Ben Affleck in Last Jewel, but I don't know. We're, maybe we're just going to go. We'll just go a bit longer than usual this this episode. Um, I just want to quickly talk about two things quickly, which is firstly the ongoing debate about Ben Affleck's performance in the Last Jewel. Now, I, I think we we kind of touched on this before, uh, and I can't exactly remember what both our thoughts were, but it seems like today on Twitter there's been an ongoing discussion about whether Ben Affleck's performance is Oscar nomination worthy, Oscar winning worthy, or not or good but not special right the way down to bad it feels like there is such a mismatch of opinions like such a mixed bag of thoughts on on how good ben affleck is as the count in uh or the prince or whatever in the last duel um do you have any words to say about that 
I don't think that he gives a an Oscar winning performance or Oscar, maybe Oscar nominated, but not Oscar winning. Um, because it is just weird and it's one of those performances that just shouldn't work because it's so over the top and weird, but it really does. And it's so much fun. And I, he gave my, probably my favorite performance in the last year. Oh, well, no, apart from Jodie Comer, but apart from Jodie Comer, he gave my favorite performance in the last year. I thought he was, you know, he was a scenes dealer. Yeah, no, I thought he was excellent. Uh, I think Oscar nomination definitely for me, like Neville. Um, now, if there is five people that I think is, are better, that's fair enough. But I think like his performance is good enough uh, in general, on, on average, for an Oscar nomination. I think. I think that even though he's not in that many scenes, he's excellent when he's in it. I think he might be my favorite performance in it, including Jodie Comer. So, because um, I didn't, I thought she was great, but I didn't necessarily think she was as great as everyone else did. So. Um, you know, we'll have to see how that comes uh, around Oscar time. I'll have to rewatch the film, of course, as well. Um, and secondly, I just wanted to quickly talk about Morbius um, because I feel like no one's talking about Morbius <laughs> and everyone's talking about Morbius at the same time. Um, and a Morbius trailer came out this week, and I feel like trailers for Morbius have been coming out since about two thousand three. Um, now I think it looks really good. I don't know if I'm the only person that thinks it's really good, but I think Morbius looks really good. No. Uh, if if that's what you think, okay. I think it looks way better than like almost anything that Marvel are doing. Like I think, I think it looks, looks way better than the Eternals. I don't know my my kind of expectations for the Spunk or the Sony, the Spider Man universe of Sony characters or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, they're very kind of low because of the trailers like i feel like the venom trailer presented it to be one thing and it was something completely different so i do think it's a good trailer but i don't expect it to be even remotely similar in tone or like quality as the trailer i'm not look i i didn't like venom at the carnage that much i thought it was okay mm. um i i did quite like the first venom um now but I don't know. Even I don't think this is going to be anything like those in tone. And I, I think I'm generally more looking forward, to, or more not looking forward, but I'm more interested in what Sony's going to be doing over the next few years than what Marvel Studios are going to be doing. Um, I think the idea of, of of a darker kind of section of the MCU, and also of course Spider Man No Way uh, Spider Man No Way Home is 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 Sony more than Marvel. Anyway, even though it's got the production credits for Kevin Feige and stuff, it's still produced by by Sony. So between Spider, the new Spider Man films, the Into the Spider Verse film sequels that are coming out and spin offs, the Spider Woman film that's being made by um, Olivia uh, Wilde, yeah. uh, and and this, like for me, I, I don't know. I'm I guess I'm very much in the minority here, but I'm really really excited what Sony are doing, not just in their little like weird universe. But in their entire superhero branch, I'm very excited personally. Um, and also, I'm really—I'm not going to be doing the Eternals this week because I'm taking a break from the podcast because I've yeah. been very busy recently. So I might take a one or perhaps two episodes off. Um, so I'm not going to be doing the Eternals on the weekend, but I will give you my thoughts on my back. Um, but I'm not really looking forward to it. I know. Uh, I think I've talked to you about this before, but I think the trailers are incredibly bland, uh, and this has been met by the fact that the it's the first ever Marvel film to be rotten on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, that doesn't really mean much because Rotten Tomatoes is not necessarily like the most obvious show of quality because it's just how many people have the film over six or whatever. Um, 
but yeah, we'll have to talk. We all talk about it then. But you know, keep curious. I watched the first. I watched the first episode of Squid Game today. Did you? I still haven't got yeah. around to it. I'm going to try and get through it this week, and um, yeah, I'll see what the hype's about. The first episode was very good, but I feel like I already know exactly what's going to happen because of the internet. So um, yeah, there's was no surprises there. But I'm sure it'll, it'll, it it looks good, and it's going to be good going on. And the visuals is beautiful. It looks very very good looking film. Do you have any uh, closing thoughts? No, look, I don't think so. Apart from you know, I'm excited to see Eternals. My my interest has been piqued by the bad critical reception. Oddly, I think um yeah, because it seems like even if it's bad, because I've said for the past few films, like I said this with Avengers and Spider Man and um Black Widow and Shang Chi, even the good Marvel films now, like I thought Shang Chi was one of the best Marvel films. Even the good ones, they're getting very repetitive, and I'm kind of getting bored of this formula that they have, the infamous Marvel formula. So even if Eternals is bad, at least it's something different. And I think that intrigues me more than anything, that it's different. It's not just, you know, cut print Marvel formula, 90% of Rotten Tomatoes. It's something completely different to everything else. And that really intrigues me. More than 100% on Rotten Tomatoes would. I don't know if I'm more than 100%, but yeah, I do know what you mean. Um, and uh, yeah, of course, we can hear your review of that and Spencer uh, next week. Okay, um, I think that's all. Uh, so thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you want to follow me, you can do so on Twitter at SamHMedia and on Letterboxd at Sam Houston. You can follow Lewis on Twitter at LewisJWR and on Letterboxd at LJWR. And you can follow the podcast at NowShowingPod at gmail. You can follow the podcast at NowShamePod, sorry. And you can email the podcast at NowShamePod at gmail.com. Uh, we are proud to be members of the Mutant City Diving Network. Um, you can find their website with a whole host of podcasts about films such as ours, uh, music and sports, and a whole host of articles about those subjects and more. And you find them on Twitter at MCDIPod. Uh, if you like the podcast and you support it, the best way to do so is by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. I didn't say iTunes this week. Apple Podcasts. Um, and listening every week tell all your friends um thank you to the people of south africa for listening uh we'll see you next time and thank you for listening bye bye